0: Astonishing Legends would like to thank Quip, Simply Safe, Harry's, Mac Weldon, and our contributors at Patreon for making tonight's show possible. This is the tale of the Gremlins, as told by the PRU at Benson and Wick in St. Evil. And believe me, you slobs, it's true. When you're seven miles up in the heavens, that's a hell of a lonely spot. And it's 50 degrees below zero, which isn't exactly hot. When you're frozen blue like your Spitfire, and you're scared a mosquito pink, when you're thousands of miles from nowhere, and there's nothing below but the drink, it's then that you'll see the gremlins, green and gamboge and gold, male and female and neuter, gremlins both young and old. It's no good trying to dodge them. The lessons you learnt on the link won't help you evade a gremlin. Though you boost, and you dive, and you jink. White ones will wiggle your wingtips. Male ones will muddle your maps. Green ones will guzzle your glycol. Females will flutter your flaps. Pink ones will perch on your perspex and dance pirouettes on your prop. There's a spherical middle-aged gremlin who'll spin on your stick like a top. They'll freeze up your camera shutters. They'll bite through your aileron wires they'll bend and they'll break and they'll batter they'll insert toasting forks into your tires and that is the tale of the gremlins as told by the pru pretty ruddy unlikely to many but a fact nonetheless to the few
1: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends.
0: I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. I was a 22-year-old B-17 pilot and flight commander. I'm very aware of my surroundings, and as I go higher, I notice an unusual sound coming from the engine. The instruments went nuts. I look at my right, and I see an entity staring at me. Then I look at the aircraft's nose, and there's another one hanging in there, dancing lizards. Paraphrased account by a pilot known as LW from Cryptozoology News. Join us tonight for our episode on Gremlins. And we're back. We've moved past the space ball. Hey. (laughs) It's okay. That's what the family calls it, space ball. That is true. Well, just a few quick notes before we jump into tonight's single episode topic. A refreshing change for some of you, I'm sure. Well, it's going to be still a long single episode, but (laughs) well,
1: first things first. We have selected some new colors for a new round of coffee mugs. We'll let you know as soon as those are back in the store. We'll spring the colors on you later. They're kind of fun. Also, here's a fun Patreon bonus content thing we're doing. I'm taking the copy of the script that the Betts family shared with us about their story and asking... After I redact the names from it, I'll be scanning it and handing it over to Tess to post on Patreon for our patrons. I'm currently waiting on a special redaction marker that I ordered on Amazon. I know it's our first redacted document, but can you just use a Sharpie? Dude, this is a special redaction marker. Oh, I see.
0: Yeah, but, you know. Just leave me alone. Okay, all right. (laughs) All right, well, I'll make the last point of the housekeeping here. From time to time, in an effort to support our sponsors... Thank you so much, by the way. Folks will reach out to us to say, hey, I want to try out Quip or Simply Safe or The Great Courses Plus, but I want to make sure that you guys get the credit. So what's the promo code or whatever? And the answer to that is, if you go to AstonishingLegends.com, right there on the main page, the splash page... You just have to scroll down a little and there'll be a search bar. It's very prominently featured right there. You can't miss it. Yes, right in the middle. Just scroll down. It's a big old search bar and you just type in the name of the product you're looking for. So Quip, Q-U-I-P or whatever it is. And it will punch up the separate episode pages where that product was featured on that show. So as you may know, and hopefully you do because you go check them out, every episode we do for every topic has its own page. Sometimes there'll be updated links and new photos. It will also have the sponsors that were mentioned in that show and the product codes for them. So you just scroll down that page a little bit, you'll see special offers from our special sponsors and the descriptions for each product and the promo codes you need to use are right there. All right, one last thing.
1: Yes, we know the Dyatlov Pass investigation has been reopened. And, and solved. Yeah. Right? solved. It's Mystery not solved. solved. yet. Oh, it's sorry, not, sorry. Okay. Uh, but we are all over that. In fact, we're part of the reason that's happening. Not that we were in the driver's seat at all, but we did contribute to a GoFundMe that helped uh, get that rolling. So mm-hmm. updates and even interviews are going to come as we are able to corral them. We're working furiously in the background
0: on those, just like The Wizard of Oz. All right. So before we get started on Gremlins, why... Did you pick this topic? Because I love it, too. I've always heard about them. Well, there's a couple of reasons.
1: One was coming out of the intensity that was the Sphere. I was looking for something that I thought might <laughs> yeah. be a little bit briefer. That still could be aeronautic. <laughs> yeah. In, in yeah. a way. I yeah. Guess. I love aeronautic stuff, which is... Yeah. I mean, I think we both do. We've covered a lot of it since we started the show. But yeah. I'm also fascinated with um, mechanical things. I uh, started but did not finish a degree in mechanical engineering. Instead, <laughs> well, going that's... into the creative
0: arts. Uh, we'll all for that, I suppose. Oh, but uh, I still,
1: I love that stuff. People that know me and follow me on social media and have been listening to the show a long time know that I like cars and planes and all things mechanical. And the other thing is, in the years since we started the show, we have stumbled across a lot of really fascinating stories. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I was like, we should get to the bottom of this, especially with regard to not only aviation, but gremlins in general, even from some of our own friends. So I thought, hey, you know what? Let's drill down on this a little bit and see where it takes
0: us. Yeah, it's really two areas that are of interest to us, which is fast-moving machinery, boats and cars and planes and all that kind of stuff, but also folklore. Yes, so there you go. That's why I wanted to do it. Which is where this is rooted in. So what is a gremlin here? Well, essentially a gremlin is often described as a goblin-like creature that seems to have its roots in folklore tradition, but It became popular with military pilots, especially the British at first during World War II, but possibly earlier. So that's a little bit of a debate there. When did it really start? But mostly people think about it as a World War II british phenomenon with the royal air force where it then entered after that into the modern mainstream zeitgeist oh there's a word we haven't had around in a while i've been waiting to use that one welcome back
1: (laughs) gremlins could be associated with the prankster nature with many entities which there are many names for goblins hobgoblins fairies pixies elves sprites gnomes brownies leprechauns bogeys and bugaboos which are more spirit-like fears, yeah. or imps, collectively known as the wee folk.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of names, I know. Yeah. But that's what they're all you love lists. with. Pretty hey, this isn't me. In. I'd make these up. These no, are all but this... you're going to get them all in there. That's what I like. You know why? Because people say, you forgot imps. Yeah. <laughs> you forgot sprites. <laughs> they're part of this. Which is true. They're all kind of gathered into, like you just said, the collection of we folks, the diminutive but powerful supernatural kind of creatures that inhabit our world through folklore, but also people see these things from time to time or so they claim. Yes. So it is part of our world. That is a lot of fun, but it can be dangerous. They can be mischievous. And that's the difference about them. Instead of doing
1: what might be considered playing tricks on humans, they're more associated with causing damage and mischief with machinery, especially aircraft. And now when causing damage to an aircraft, they're said to do enough to cause the plane to execute a forced landing or return to base, but not quite enough to directly cause death. And they also don't physically attack a pilot or passengers, although there's... That we know of. Yeah, that we know of, although there's one story we're going to touch on tonight where that may have happened. Uh, They may, however, play mental tricks on pilots or poke or tickle them at inopportune times.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, it's a mental, it's a physical sensation in that they cause you to doubt stuff. They can put thoughts in your heads. But mostly they're known for causing mechanical problems. And I know that aircraft are very complicated machines, of course. But this happened, as we'll see, possibly starting in the biplane era, which, yes, it's a machine, but not as complicated as mid-century No, that's machines. a wood fabric, a motor, yeah, and cables. There's wires there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but weird stuff happened to those pilots, it seems, as well. And so, you know, in tracing back this folklore here, which is specifically of a very particular nature, that's another reason that we love this. It's just its own thing. We'll see some differences between these other types of wee folk and gremlins themselves. Well, you know, they're mostly known to cause trouble, but there are a few stories from flyers where they claimed they were helped by gremlins to get home. Yes. That's very few and far between. But it has been reported. One of the most famous pilots in the world reported on being assisted by something on one of his most famous flights, and we'll talk about that. Yeah, but were they gremlins by definition, or was it something else? But Hard he to definitely said he was helped. Female gremlins are called finellas or fifinellas. There's a lot of variations here, but weirdly, there are a lot of things where the origin, the definitions can't be totally found or, or found the exact origin of, but they're consistent in a really weird way. Yes. The young offspring or young gremlins are called widgets. Right. And this is what's fascinating to me about this.
1: I don't even know if, if you looked into this because mm-hmm. you outlined this section here, but the definition of widgets that I knew growing up, or yeah. I should say in college, I didn't really ever think about the word until college when I took Econ 101, economics, and whenever there was a case study of a hypothetical company mm-hmm. it was always manufacturing widgets right
0: <laughs> that's, that's and it was true. like so and yeah. so
1: makes x number of widgets right. what's the opportunity cost of buy so there was that and then also of course there's apple and all their widgets which is all the little plug in things and weird things that i don't really know anybody that uses including me yeah yeah, yeah. but oh, yes, uh, you I know, know you used mean, to yes. tell you the
0: weather on your desktop yeah. or whatever i still whatever. use a few of those but the idea though is that it's kind of a catch all term or has become a catch all term and this may not be the origin But it's fascinating to try and track this down to uh, its first possible usage. It's kind of like ham, remember? We couldn't really get to the bottom of who said ham radio operator or a ham or a hammy. That's hard to figure out who said that first. So like widgets, it's kind of hard to tell who came up with that first And what was the original definition? Well, getting back to some quick cursory research, which we haven't done since we started. Mm. According to
1: the internet, widget may be an an adaptation of the word gadget, Mm -hmm. and they think it happened in the 1930s. The definition online says it's a small gadget or mechanical device, especially one whose name is unknown or unspecified. So it's not entirely clear to me, depending on the origins of the gremlins and their offspring called widgets, that possibly could have predated this, but yeah. they're, they're certainly
0: not saying that online. Well,
1: uh,
0: gremlins specifically, the ones that are of the air and of aircraft, do have a starting date, which would be with the airplane. Yes. They're not ancient, but they have ancient roots. So let's take a look at where the word possibly may have come from. Now, this is from uh, unexplainedstuff.com. They had a good summation. We went back and looked at other sources, and uh, they seem to uh, sum it up pretty well. The term gremlin was derived from the old English word grem or gremion, which means to vex and annoy. Folklorist John Hazen had stated in his research that he found some sources to claim the grem or gremion word origin. While in the book Spirits, Fairies, Leprechauns and Goblins, an encyclopedia, author Carol Rose, she states that the name gremlin comes from a combination of the name Grimm's Fairy Tales and Fremlin Beer, which was a bottled beer from Fremlin's brewery in Maidstone, Kent, England, and established in 1861. That's a very popular definition there. That, that, that was common favorite of all the ones <laughs> well, we so, came
1: across. And also yeah. it seems really plausible to me because you can see sure. some aviators sitting around talking and drinking and talking about crazy thing that happened in their plane and somebody coining the word. You right, know. right, right. Yeah, yeah, I don't I don't know. I can't imagine how that first conversation <laughs> went. But it makes sense. Fremlin,
0: Grim, you know, Grimlin. Well, again, there were. it might, you know, have originated with several guys around a bunch of beers. Yeah. And it just cemented. Nobody really knows exactly who was the first one to say it. That's a likelihood. The other one, though, no, I'm down with to vex or uh, the old English definition. But the Fremlin explanation is also found in the Sutton Companion to Folklore. Quote, Gremlins are the latest addition to the world of fairies and goblins. Gremlins were born out of the imaginations of an RAF bomber crew stationed on India's northwest frontier. The name was inspired by Fremlins beer, where the letter F was replaced by a G, which stood for grim in that case. And it was said that the beer was popular with RAF pilots in this Indian region because that's all they could get. It's elephant like, on the bottle, that's their mascot. It's like Milwaukee's best when you're a freshman in college. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, <laughs> that's what you drink. <laughs> the beast from the east. Well, the role of the gremlin was to take the blame for various unaccountable things that can go wrong with an airplane. And it sprang to fame after Group Captain Leonard Cheshire, V.C., Victoria Cross, that's an award he's won, yes. uh, was heard cursing gremlins on a York aerodrome. It's pretty precise, original claim, but this guy was, uh, he was renowned. He was no slouch. This guy was one of the highest decorated air servicemen in World War II, and he'd received a uh, the Victoria Cross, as I said, the highest award for gallantry in the face of the enemy. It's a weird thing that he would have said that or cursed it, unless he was joking around. So that's a theme here that there's a lot of joking around with this, but also not. The idea seems to be taken somewhat seriously, but to the public, it is ridiculous. <laughs> These are outrageous stories. And so we'll take a look at that complex idea as we go along here. There's another source. This is a book called Fighting Words by Christine Armour.
1: This sounds like a really great book, by the way. She mentions the Fremlin thing as well, but then she cites someone else, another writer, who maintained that the word was current in the RAF soon after World War I. And in those days, it meant a low ranking man assigned to the least desirable duties.
0: Yeah, that's kind of important there because we'll see that pop up as a connection to the idea of gremlins and that they are um, not respected or if you disrespect them, they can mess you up, which you don't want to uh, insult the guy working on the mechanics of your plane. Right. But also another possible instance where this word shows up that's mentioned is Charles Graves' thin blue line and that is, I believe, after the same mention at that Yorkshire airfield. Those are all just moments where this thing could have originated, but the word gremlin is very phonetically similar to goblin, and also very similar to the British English slang gremmies, meaning a goblin or imp. Can you do that in a British accent for us? Grammys. <laughs> uh, anyway, connected to the idea, though, of the gremlin, this is kind of interesting because it takes an offshoot here, but it is connected, are the mogwai of Chinese folklore, which many of us know from the reference in the 1984 movie called Gremlins. Yes. The word mogwai is the transliteration of the Cantonese word mo and guai, meaning monster or evil spirit and demon or devil. So in the Chinese tradition, mogwais are demons or spirits of deceased non-family members which are out to cause harm to humans, often as a means of revenge for being wronged in life. Like a vengeful ghost. Remember, we've talked about that before, that idea. Wow, you found the origin of the word mogwai? Well, someone did. <laughs> but I mean, I'm, I do no, I, not I, see I, this in here. That's pretty impressive. Actually, it's funny because I have a friend who teaches English and he taught in Taiwan. Sorry if I goofed this up, but I believe a slang for white people in uh Far East Asia is guai, like ghost, because you're so pale. Oh. So okay. it's kind of a slang, maybe a little bit derogatory. Yeah. But anyway, we were talking way back then, years and years ago, about Mogwai. And of course, there's a prog rock band who is uh, from Scotland, yeah, called Mogwai, which I like. But you may be wondering, like, wait, now we're talking about these furry teddy bears, these furbies yeah. <laughs> from the movie from 1984. <laughs> What's the point here? Well, the connection is that they're very similar in character and intent. And although one is Chinese and doesn't really fly, the other one is English, Celtic, in a way, with their woodland folk. But they're all wee folk, and they are similar in nature in that what happens, Scott, when you feed them after midnight? Um, From the movie, anyway. They go crazy. (laughs) They turn evil. They did a little bit of research in the movie. I think that was Chris Columbus who wrote the screenplay and that there is something about sunlight and water. I don't know about the food after midnight. That's probably just a bad idea, but (laughs) there are only three rules with the Mogwai. One, do not get them wet because they will start to reproduce. Water is very important. Two, bright lights will hurt them and sunlight could kill them. Three, do not feed them after midnight because then they turn into horrible beasts. And that is more like the actual gremlins. And as you saw in the movie, they kind of look like some of the descriptions more of gremlins. Yes. So there's a connection here. I know it seems far distant, but in in Chinese philosophy, water, though, is the primal substance by which all things come and will eventually return to. And as said by Qi Guangzhou in the book, Chinese Mythology in the Context of Hydraulic Society, In cosmology, folklore, myth, ritual, and iconography, water fills the same function, whatever the type of cultural pattern. Indeed, it does benefit all creatures on Earth, real or imaginary. Numerous Chinese gods, heroes, and mythological creatures, especially you and the dragon, are associated with water. So the connection here is that these, again, being nature spirits, mogwai, which can behave like gremlins, but on the ground, are connected to water. That's their thing. Gremlins are spirits of the air. That's their thing. That's their domain. I know it's kind of hard to wrap your head around. Where are they popping out of? Yeah, and supposedly they can't fly. Not themselves, but there are reports where they come out of the clouds. Yes. Or they appear. In one way, they are kind of a cryptid, you could consider, but they are more spiritual. Maybe like all cryptids. That's another big idea. Bigfoot being interdimensional. He pops in and out. All these creatures of the woods and the air and the elements pop in and out at will. They come through long tubes that Skinwalker around. <laughs> they can. Three-dimensional tubes that yes. uh, just pop out of nowhere. Yes. I see. Two-dimensional well... from one side <laughs> and three-dimensional from the other. Well, that makes sense. Well, what do these gremlins look like? There are several versions. Basically, you're run-of-the-mill goblin or hobgoblin, <laughs> but with a few variations. They are diminutive, as we said, between one and several feet tall, but these are small creatures, Sometimes they're gray-skinned, alien grays. Sometimes they're covered in fur, sometimes with horns, sometimes pointed ears, glowing eyes. Some can kind of speak an incomprehensible version of English or some unknown language. Sometimes pilots have claimed that they've spoken into their ears, insulting them or trying to confuse them. Yes, or help them in other Very cases. Very rarely, but yes. <laughs> but yes, sometimes they try and help them. But they're often described as being skilled with machinery. We're talking specifically about gremlins now but being like a weird goblin or elf or like any of the creatures we just mentioned in that long fun list. But think about this. It's like uh, elves that make shoes. remember the story where the, uh, the shoemaker was behind and at night, uh, pixies or elves would come in and make the shoes and they're yes. the best shoes ever. They are expert craftspeople. Well, gremlins in a weird way are seen as expert with machines except that they use that expertise to destroy and take apart in a most skillful way. And sometimes just very savagely, they chew through wires and cause a lot of destruction, but they're not doing it out of ignorance. They know what they're doing to cause the most amount of uh, prankishness and destruction. When it comes to that, what I think about, especially with all the stuff that we've read, I think
1: about Rocket from Guardians of the Galaxy and you now he was uh, a raccoon but just the mechanical prowess they, they, they can just do anything with yeah. whatever they're they're kind of a team in it you if you lock them
0: in a shed they're going to build something you know a, a cabbage cannon <laughs> well exactly but th- <laughs> and those ideas, their out. well that's what those ideas aren't that new i mean think about santa's elves yeah. like i said they're expert toy makers and we're going to talk about roald dahl at some point who figures into this story pretty prominently but his gremlins Also were very skilled, but they could use their skills for good or bad, depending on how they felt.
1: Now, in other cases, gremlins are more specifically described as looking like the chupacabra. Yeah, yeah. With spiny backs, spiky hair, pointed ears, sharp teeth, claws, and reptilian eyes. Think of the one that John Lithgow saw on the wing of his plane in the Twilight Zone movie. Which was more of what we think of as a goblin. Yeah, that was more goblin like, but I, that I think movie it really scared me to death. <laughs> that but, was a and really John good Gow, Man, nobody yeah. is
0: better at panicking than him. No, plus his eyes bugging out over yeah. that. It was and, horrible. Uh, yeah. But that was all based on the original
1: Twilight Zone episode that had a very young Bill Shatner in it. <laughs> That's right. And that gremlin looked more like a guy wearing a grotesque halloween mask and a suit made from a sheepskin seat
0: cover and
1: dipped in sausage
0: gravy but i mean you <laughs> mm. work with what you got at the time yeah no, if you look at pictures of it look it's a tv show so it's it's not all rick baker no uh, it's yeah. little dick uh, smith
1: oh it's by the way the twilight zone's coming back did you see that the commercial during the Super Bowl? oh yes yeah i'm excited about yeah that? pretty I cool heard about that
0: but the idea is it's that there are two versions the more modern film adaptation that gremlin is very scary that's what's kind of seen or described sometimes in some contemporary events where people saw something weird screwing with the machinery and it was more goblin-like, dishes. Yeah. yeah. Well, the one that the one that bothers William Shatner on the wing of the plane. On the wing of the plane, there are ideas where it's more beast-like and some that are more like little men. Now, in that case, where they're more like little people, sometimes British air crews during World War II would describe characters that were more just like British folklore. You know, they were more human and maybe what a gnome might wear. And to some airmen, they appeared more like elves Have you seen uh, those British safety posters? There's motivational posters to stay safe, and there's pictures of gremlins. Yes, yes, yes. In those posters, those are more, of course, comical, not so horribly frightening. I mean, the accidents are frightening. The industrial accidents that could happen to you if you don't pay attention, because gremlins are floor greasers. Yeah. They do horrible things out, out of boredom, or just it just turns them on. In that instance. In that instance. So those posters, it's just kind of funny that... They could say back our battle skies. So, when you're working in the factories, gremlins are present. And that idea was present in the factories, not just with pilots or onboard planes. Well, yeah, it was a way to personify the concept of staying safe.
1: It was exactly uh, a exactly. pre OSHA situation. Right.
0: Well, those are uh, <laughs> pictured as uh, comical, pinheaded guys with little tufts of hair on top. And they've got more of like 1840s British men's garb, again, with the frock coats. Tight pants, tricorn hat with a feather. <laughs> right. Sometimes, well, that was uh, other descriptions yeah. that are more weird, and you kind of think like, "How's the hat going to stay on?" At, <laughs> uh, you know, at eight thousand feet. But it's more of a concept in a weird way. The gremlins in the posters have little neck ruffs. They're more like again what you might picture with British folklore yeah. and legends and tales of old, Rumpelstiltskinish, which points back to the possibility of a British origin of the concept of the gremlin. Yeah, in, or at least in that case. Yeah, again, like an elf, red or green double-breasted frock coats. Sometimes they had uh, stocking caps that had tassels at the ends, but only in high altitudes. So all these little <laughs> rules that were kind of made up here. They wore tights, pointed footwear. They required uniform exactly (laughs) well what do they do to these planes well some like to suck the high octane gas into the tanks others messed with the landing gears still others specialized in jamming the radio frequencies just as the pilots and mechanics were learning to respect the gremlin crowd it wasn't long before they also began to be annoyed by the gremlin's girlfriends we have to wonder with all these different looks that they
1: have, mm-hmm. it's a lot of different looks. And this is one of the things that I thought about. And, you know, I feel like we come back to it a lot when we're covering these stories, not just with this, but with ghosts and the yeah. idea, I mean, we always say tulpas and all that, <laughs> you, but you do wonder if this is a case where like with Woody Derenberger yeah. and Edward Cold's Flying Lantern, mm-hmm. is it a case where the experiencer sees what their mind is capable of or more prone to interpreting. They're seeing yeah. what they can wrap their heads around. Right. And so their mind plays a part in the depiction of the thing
0: they're seeing. Floating disco wizard. Yes, There the you disco go. wizard. The disco wizard yeah. floating in the sky. The impossibly tall grinning man wearing a clownish multicolored outfit. Yes. Seen by David Weatherly. That was 15, 20 years ago. They were driving along a North Carolina highway or a road out in the woods, come around a corner, and there it is standing in the in the tall weeds in the tall grass, with an impossible grin, but dressed like something from another bygone era, or Willy Wonka, another rolled doll thing happening here. But that's kind of the picture we're forming here, or at least we have from all you know the research that we've come across. Is that there are varying descriptions, but within those varying descriptions, it's kind of consistent. So again, there's the uh, more reptilian, ghoulish, goblin-like ones. There's the more human, maybe like gnomes or little humans of the period wearing period costumes. Just depends on who's telling the tale. Hola, soy
1: Ana. Y estás escuchando Leyendas Asombrosas con Scott Philbrook y
0: Ahora volvamos al show. All right, so we're beginning to see that gremlins are a variation of the we folk of folklore. And the ones that have been reported to have damaged aircraft, or of course from the 20th century. So it's kind of a modern bit of folklore that was created, but from an ancient idea. Now, the idea of gremlins being nature spirits, they have some of those qualities, and they seem to be part spirit and part a physical creature, which are kind of interchangeable. I guess at their will, they can pop in and out of different places. That's why they can pop into planes, but they're also described as following pilots onto planes. Here's what's super fascinating about that to me is
1: the nature, the fairies, that sort of thing. These are... More a product of the industrial age because they're exactly. not out in the woods. Right. I mean, they're up in the clouds, yeah. but they're messing with your airplane. That isn't <laughs> right. a thing, a man-made thing. It's mechanical. Right. That's where they take a left turn from traditional fairies and yeah. wood sprites right, and, right. and puckwudgies and that sort of thing.
0: Right. There have been spirits of the air, certainly, with folklore and mythology. And some things like fairies, you know, we picture them with wings, fairy wings. Yes. But they fly. These ones waited around until we could fly. And I love
1: that one of the origin stories we found talks about specifically how they were inspired by the construction of aircraft and the destruction of their habitat, right? You've got that in here, right?
0: Yeah, that's going to be featured prominently by a guy we all know or should know. Yes, Mr. Dahl. That's right. Every culture seems to have their own version of we
1: folk, considered nature spirits or beings like we were just talking about. Those ones are often connected to the land or water of a region, or in the case of gremlins, even the air. Now, in the UK and the Scandinavian countries, these beings inhabited a magical world underground, or they're in hidden places like caves or mounds or something like another dimension, often scurrying and floating around in the woods, but connected to our world where they could pop in and out or could be. Summoned. Now, German folklore has the kobold, which is a mischievous gnome like spirit that lives in underground places. Again, this is something that Forrest touched on a few minutes yeah. ago. There's like a dual existence to these creatures being both physical and spirits. And here's the other thing this reminds yeah. me of there are connections here to the Kelly Hopkinsville story. Yes. A lot of people think there's a lot of connections between the appearance of the Kelly Hopkinsville goblins. And what a gremlin looks like. And then mm-hmm. on top of that, with that popping in and out of existence thing connects back to the whole Kentucky story that we touched on that has since become the series Hellier that Greg and Dana Newkirk yeah. have produced over at Week and Weird. So everything is connected.
0: Well, <laughs> certainly these tales are. Then you gotta wonder, you know, the tales of ancient, antiquated folks from uh, antiquity, were they talking about something that even peoples today are claiming to see popping out of caves in weird places, just materializing, and then we go to look for them, they dematerialize. Is it the same thing? Because they occupy two worlds here, the physical and the spirit world, and it's their choice when to make an appearance. Usually, it seems. Sometimes, like I said, maybe they could be conjured. That's the old uh, folklore of, of old. If you knew a spell or the right things to say, you could get them to appear and make a deal or get them to do your bidding.
1: Yeah, I just want to say for the record yeah. that a lot of times when you conjure something, it puts it in a bad mood.
0: Oh, well, we're <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of that, yeah, you have to respect them. That's another thing that is going to be a common theme throughout this show. They are deserving of your respect. You don't have to like them, but you can't mess with them because they will <laughs> they can turn on you. They can help you or they can be your worst nightmare and give you a lot of problems. So yeah, you must you know leave them alone essentially as much as you can, but they're messing with you here. But even so, you still have to respect them because that idea of respect, that's also ancient. There were fairy-like folk back in the ancient Roman days, and they didn't just live outdoors. These were household spirits, and in the cultures like in ancient Rome, these small spirits inhabited each home, and they were called Larrys. L-A-R-E-S. And if you appease them, they'd watch over your house and barn and your family, and your animals. And if you didn't, they could turn on you. This Uh, sounds a lot like Larry from Three's Company. (laughs) Larry's, different spelling. Yeah. (laughs) But I see what you mean. You you want to appease him too. Yeah. Well, with the Roman tradition and the influence over Europe by their conquests, I'm sure some of this folklore tradition carried on in some form and influenced European, medieval traditions and folklore. Yeah. Here's something pretty funny. Bogart or Boggarts? Yeah, Uh, either one. (laughs) B-O-G-G-A-R-T-S.
1: These are household creatures that are said to be what brownies turn into if they are abused or taken advantage of. Yeah, sound like the Mogwai, right? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And these are known to be mischievous and troublesome and often either in homes or marshes. They are physically described as human-like and a
0: bit beast like, yeah. and generally ugly. Yes, yeah, so that's more the goblin like, human like features, but grotesque, kind of ugly, and, and that should let you know that they're they're up to no good, right? <laughs> so, like Nick Nolte's mugshot. Oh dear. Well, <laughs> some of the some of the wee folk or the fairy folk, their domain is the land. They are connected to the land. It's very special. It's sacred to them and often they are seen as helpful or friendly. They can be playful, jolly like gnomes, and even if they're pranksters or practical jokers, there's humor involved. I mean, it's at the human's expense, of course, but there's a good-naturedness to them and a playfulness. So I believe in Iceland, they're really big on gnomes. It is that same kind of a similar thing where, you know, they know it's maybe seen as silly to the outside world, but they... Respect them. It's an important part of folklore, and a lot of people kind of believe it, or they leave space for belief, let's say. Yeah. Of these little wee folk, and they have little homes for them, and, and you know, you've seen them uh, have cute little uh, areas with little tiny houses where Aww. they're symbolic, but they yeah. can, well, hey, maybe if they can fit in there, they can live there, and... It's kind of a tribute. Well, it falls into that why not category. What's it going to hurt if we
1: make a little house for them? Exactly. The
0: it's a, so it's a little bit where superstition falls into it. Why not do it if it's going to help? Yeah. Often these nature spirits are benevolent or nice or they're mischievous and play pranks. But there are spirits of other elements like the water, nature spirits of the water that are malevolent and downright deadly, like Scotland's mythic Kelpies. And that's another thematic connection to hear to the Chinese Mogwai. Their spirits are kind of water spirits too. I love Kelpies. They're just a the name <laughs> kind of freaks me out. Well, you and wouldn't you know. like them if you saw one. No, I know. Yeah.
1: But these are the skinwalkers of the water. Shape-shifting water spirits that inhabit the lakes or lochs. And Loch Ness has the most reported Kelpie lore. Yeah, yeah. Pools, rivers, streams of Scotland are places you can also find them. The word Kelpie is thought to possibly come from the Scots Gaelic word, Kalpa. Or Kale Peak. Yeah, we're not sure.
0: I couldn't find it pronounced anywhere. It may not even be a real All thing. right, well, it's C-A-I-L-P-E-A-C-H. <laughs> right. yeah. Good meaning, look on Gaelic. Right,
1: yeah. meaning heifer or colt. Yeah. A Kelpie usually takes the form of a horse or pony where it can lure young children to ride it and then take them somewhere to devour or drown them. Mm. A Kelpie can take human form, sometimes as a beautiful young woman, luring men to their deaths or drowning wayward travelers. Kelpies can also cause flooding to a village near a river. Now, if you manage to capture a Kelpie by its bridle or place a halter on it that has the sign of a cross, you can control it and other Kelpies. This is similar to capturing a leprechaun and making it take you to its pot of gold.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure if that's authentic and traditional, but uh, that's what we know here in the States.
1: Well, that legend is thought to be a cautionary tale to scare young children away from water or to warn young men and women about trusting handsome strangers.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, the gremlin myth, as we who do not fly may see it, because I think if you're, if you're a flyer, you may have a different opinion of gremlins. But it can be a, a cautionary tale to pay attention, make sure your gear and your equipment you know, is up to snuff, do your pre-flight checks, be very vigilant because you're entering into a dangerous endeavor here.
1: You know what this reminds me of was on the Flannon Islands series that we uh-huh. did was the legend of those pygmies of Scotland's Hebrides Islands. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Violent, murderous wee folk. <laughs> so the legend goes. Yeah, because remember the little house,
0: the little rock house yeah. on the island? Mm-hmm. And uh, if those were real, they may have spawned some folktales themselves. Yeah, that's a good point here because this region, and again, this is the uh, United Kingdom in general, is where the gremlins idea takes place, but it doesn't kind of stay there. We'll get to that later in the World War II era, but they seem to start here in their folklore traditions. And again, so as we're seeing here, as we conclude this section, that the gremlins themselves might be something of the 20th century, but they have their roots in ancient folklore. So there are wee folk or fairy folk that are friendly or beneficial, as we've seen, and spirits that are malevolent and murderous. And there are fairy folk of the land and and of the water. So why not the air? That's another element yeah. where they could exist. I know it's hard for us again to imagine because we're very physical. We're material people, creatures for the most part, and that's what we At can least see while them, we're yeah, here. That's what in we can see in our current deal. iteration. And then many of us believe we have spirits, souls. Yes, there is an aspect of that, but we Some can't see that. Some of us believe
1: these things more recently than others.
0: <laughs> we had a, it's been made clear. Let's say. <laughs> Even if you don't believe in that, what we can see day to day is other people, the physical things in our world. And that's very concrete. We can understand that. We can manipulate that. We can make machines. But we're also part of this other world, which may be just storytelling. It may be our imaginations. Because what all this folklore suggests is that our world is also inhabited not only by us, but by other people supernatural or super normal creatures. And again, if you don't believe that, then it's just stories to help us cope. They are cautionary tales like the Kelpies. They are tales, you know, maybe gremlins are just a tale to, again, train new pilots in that you better keep your stuff wired tight as you're learning to fly, because you can also be interfered with by interactions with these other physical and non-physical entities or beings of consciousness or subconscious, I guess. You got to watch out because they are physical, they're real, but they also are spiritual creatures that can mess with you wherever you are. So the idea that we're seeing here is that there's folklore and creatures of every element, earth, water, and air, and probably some fire ones we didn't check into. It was a good band. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Look, they have magical powers. They're much more powerful than us. They're smarter. They're stronger. They might be immortal on some level. But they also seem to need us. That's another important, interesting fact here. It's like, well, if they have all these great powers, what do they want with us? But they seem to be intensely curious about us humans, and they want to interact with us. And if only to meddle in our affairs and toy with us, kind of like we're their entertainment. Yeah. But we share a symbiotic relationship with them. That's fascinating. It's like, just leave us alone. What do you want with our airplanes? You must have much more interesting lives on the other side. But I guess they don't. They still need something from us. So maybe they get something from our human quality because there are common legends of these creatures kidnapping our children or leading adults away into their realm, mostly to never return. You know what this reminds me of
1: is yeah. we had a friend of the show, a guest we had on the show several months back, who had told me kind of off the record that she had had an experience with what is known as a
0: Pukwudgie. Yeah,
1: yeah which is like this cute little dude that tries to lure you away into the woods and eventually off a cliff or something.
0: And this is somebody that we find very credible. Yeah. Meeting a a wee person, a wee folk. Yeah,
1: and you look at it and it sort of beckons you, maybe not even verbally, but you just feel compelled to follow it. And when you you do, you wind up off the trail, lost, and invariably in a situation where... A misstep or a mistake will
0: kill you. Oh, yeah. Again, this is pretty rare, but I have heard some fairly recent stories from Jim Harold's campfire where people were saying they didn't really see them, but it's like it'll be something scurrying in the bushes, maybe quiet, tiny voices or something like unlike rats or something in the shrubs, but glowing, (laughs) what you might describe as fairy dust. They said some kind of luminescent dust on the shrubs. And it seemed very appealing. Like, we should go check this out. Mm-hmm. And they were like, what is that? Wow, that's so beautiful. And it's luminescent and iridescent. And it's at night. And, and they felt compelled to check it out. And then they started to approach it and they got a bad feeling. Like, yes. Uh, maybe we shouldn't go check this out maybe we don't know where this leads reminds me of are we ever alone a <laughs> show we did a long time ago yeah yeah, yeah. right we trust your bad feelings here but it still kind of goes on in contemporary times here you know we had a listener tweet to us when we were talking about hellier and you know we were talking about the goblins of kentucky weird things coming out of the caves it was in regards to that that series on youtube hellier h e l l i e r yeah let's read
1: the tweet i love this because oh, this is went from one of our Very interactive followers on Twitter, uh, Michigander58. Yep, yep. He wrote this, the day after I watched it, referring to Hellier, an online friend told me she'd moved from Detroit to Eastern Kentucky as a kid. The first thing her step-grandma told her was to never follow anything into the woods, especially little creatures that looked like children but weren't. And then he has in quotes, she was dead serious. Well, so, you know Pretty what I, cool.
0: <laughs> I say one of the best survival tactics of any area is to do what the locals do and believe them. Yeah. Because they live there. <laughs> they know what's going on. Yeah, whatever the reason
1: is. Even if this is some kind of misunderstanding or you think, oh, you don't want to poo-poo it. Because right. there's a reason if you ever take anything away from our show. And four years of doing this show mm. and all the things we've covered and some things, well, we couldn't really find something necessarily tangible at the root of it. The thing that we want you to remember is that no matter what you believe, nine times out of ten, there is some event or something that is the seed, it's the kernel of that legend, and that seed and that kernel should be respected and oftentimes feared. Hmm. No matter how much it's been exaggerated or changed, it doesn't
0: mean that you're not going to encounter that original thing that is a threat. Yeah, well, people took this very seriously especially in times past when we weren't so high and mighty and cocky and arrogant, (laughs) you know, theologians of the Middle Ages wondered what these types of wee folk and goblins and imps and elves and brownies were because they didn't have a barricade of screens around them like we do now, separating us from the natural world. They were dealing with it much more every day in a very personal way, which was often deadly. Yes but they were much more attuned. And you could say like, well, they're simpler folk then. But again, I believe that they had knowledge that we've lost since. Well, they thought that these creatures, these theologians of the Middle Ages, were either one of three things. They were either a class of angels that had been demoted or punished by God, perhaps, spirits of the dead, or a special type of departed human spirit, or fallen angels. You know the author C.S. Lewis? Well, of course. Yeah, well, he proposed that we folk might be a third class of creatures, you know, with angels on top, humans in the second tier there. Not perfect, but doing okay. Got a lot to learn. Hold our Some own. Us.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and these smaller creatures, although having powers and abilities like angels, they were kind of a third class below us. And maybe that's why they're jealous. Maybe that's why they mess with us. There's a resentment there. Yeah, I got powers. I can make stuff happen. I can spin gold if you still skin. Yeah. But you, you're special. You will look better than me. I'm horrid and ugly and grotesque. And my powers don't compare. I still want to mess with you because I, I'm jealous. And then there are hypotheses that these creatures, if real, may be a leftover of an extant race that existed before humans or alongside early humans. And they had highly advanced spiritual or mystical technology that seemed like magic back then. It would seem like magic now, too. But back then... Well, think of a J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings scenario here. Something like that, where you have humans, Boromir and those folks, the rangers, and then you had goblins and orcs and all kinds of weird stuff going on, all existing at once, long ago in some mystical world. I would not do well in that world. I don't think The first think so. orc I encountered... <laughs> I'd be like, no. (laughs) Yeah, it looks... uh, I mean, it's fun. A lot of it looks uncomfortable. Yeah. Just a little too strange to deal with. But, you know, long ago, it was thought that these creatures existed somewhere in between. Again, you have humans, you have angels. In between there, there's a lot of variation or below that, I guess, for different types of beings. At the top, you have angels. They're next to God. They're godly. We're struggling. We're somewhere in the middle and then below that, you have these wee folk that are diminutive. But again, they're more powerful than us. Often smarter, but they can be tricked by us too. That's their realm. So it just depends on what your, your belief system is. Some believe that these creatures could also breed with humans, creating half-human offspring. And you know, that doesn't sound too far off from the Nephilim, yeah, remember, we, from the Old Testament. Which we touched on in the giant series. E- exactly. Yeah. Well, except that they were described as terrible, terrible giants, not we folk, and very destructive tyrants. So anyway, maybe that's where all this evolves from, these ancient tales of we folk and nature spirits, and gremlins are a 20th century iteration of that. Well, let's get to the heyday of the Gremlin, when they make their international splash worldwide, because, you know, we believe, and it seems founded here, that they are based in very old traditional folklore, but are kind of modernized for the 1940s, World War II, but maybe a little bit before that in World War I. Really, when planes were first being used for military purposes, and that's an interesting point, because I'm sure the Wright brothers had their own string of problems. And certainly <laughs> if you watch those old comic little films of people trying to make flying machines yes. and they're all busting apart, Yes, the guy with the 21 wings and the, the hopping copter yeah. and all that, <laughs> that's a bad idea starting out. But I'm sure that the very first airplanes used all had their problems. Every piece of machinery does. But there's something about warfare that amps up these weird happenings. Yeah. Okay. And as we've just talked about, you know, there are fairy folk and goblin legends of the land and water. And some fairies are said to have wings and they fly about like Tinkerbell, but there really haven't been tales of goblin-like creatures like gremlins who attack aircraft. And to my point here, maybe because the airplane hadn't been invented yet. And that seems to be their domain, the air and airplanes, aircraft, aircraft hangars in relation and connection to that. And is that why the tales of these specific creatures that seem to only destroy machinery can't be traced really before World War I or World War II? Well, obviously, because we've not been able to get up in the air. Maybe some balloon, hot air balloon pilots did. This begs the question <laughs> yeah.
1: if aliens were having issues we wouldn't know about in their UFOs well, when they'd come to visit.
0: They're flying around. <laughs> Sometimes we'd see weird stuff in the sky, certainly. Right. Maybe a gremlin caused the Roswell crash. We wouldn't know. that would be an we know? interesting point, because maybe that was their craft. Who knows? Right. It's just all kind of weirdly connected. But specifically with these, yeah, we hadn't gotten to that domain of theirs, that element of nature. So being nature spirits, they have seemed to be a part of every element that we can experience in our environment as soon as
1: we get there. Yeah. Well, before we move on, I thought this was as good a place as any to talk about a book that I found, a rare used book that cost me, let's just say more than a couple hundred dollars.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, yeah.
1: And it's called Grimlinus Americanus, and it's by Eric Sloan, who was an illustrator and an artist and also a pilot. But on the cover, when you get the actual book, it says, The Gremlins Will Get You If You Don't Watch Out. Mm-hmm. Now, this came out in 1942, and there's some debate there, which we'll be talking about later, about who came up with some of these terms first. But the book is amazing. I, By the time you hear this, I will have probably already put some pictures from it on our social media. So go back and check us out at Instagram or look for us on Twitter or our Facebook group page or Facebook main page if you want to see some of these pictures from this book because it's truly amazing. You can tell that it inspired a lot of ensuing Warner Brothers cartoons and other ideas of what gremlins look like today. And oh, while we're here, I did want to give a shout out and a thank you to uh, one of our regularly contributing artists, David Spencer, who's done the illustration that you're seeing associated with this show. Mm -hmm. We were uh, very grateful to get him to do a quick turnaround on that. I want to just read some of these sections in this book, which is mostly illustrations with classifications of these gremlins in a very tongue-in-cheek or campy way. But there's also some interesting written word. First, I want to talk about the gremlin family tree. This will keep coming up tonight. The gremlins are a vigorous, prolific race of stalwart men, splendid females, and sturdy children. The lady gremlins are always addressed as fifanellas. The gremlin children are best known as widgets. Fifanella is one of the rare females who really takes an interest in her husband's work. This was a different time period. (laughs) Often, she becomes a successful career woman, competing with the best of the males in the field, of making pilots live unhappy hours in the air. More often, Fifanella is content to reign as the bell of the airfield and goes on flights merely for the ride, in quotes. Then she is the backseat pilot and realizes the importance of heckling and kidding the pilot. She often sits upon the pilot's shoulders, making spluttering noises like a quitting motor. The male gremlin consider this great stuff. Widgets these are the children, mm-hmm. go into intensive training to be full-fledged gremlins almost from infancy, sounds a lot like Sparta, <laughs> so rigorous is their schooling that they cannot really be said to have enjoyed a childhood. As soon as a widget has mastered the complex rigmarole of plane control mechanism, he becomes an apprentice gremlin and is immersed in the study of the numerous ways that a gremlin can annoy pilots and raise hob with flying ships. I like that phrase, raise hob. Raise hob. Oh, Hobgoblin. Yeah. If you have ever peered inside an army bomber's office, and that's in quotes again, and seen the thousands of controls and switches, you can see the possibilities for mischief and confusion. Uh-huh. So that's kind of the setup there. Here's some of the uh, the more, I guess, events that you could put your finger to. Yes, this is on a page called Case Histories. Again, this is in Eric Sloan's book, Grimless Americanus. Um, there was a first edition of this available, <laughs> that, really, that was signed by Eric Sloane. Oh, that one wow. was a thousand dollars. Yeah. Up. I did not spring for that. All right, here we go. Mine has mold and stuff. But I kind of like that. I told Forrest that when seeking out an old rare book, I actually prefer the crappier one on the list. Yeah. It's it's got more character.
0: Yeah, they smell better.
1: Although I have been sneezing a lot. (laughs) It's the mold. Yeah. So I'm just going to read this little passage here from this. There was the time a wing commander overtaking a solitary bomber in a thick overcast decided to play a trick. He ordered his formation to flip over and continue flight upside down, passing the surprised bomber in this inverted position. The idea was to make the bomber pilot think he was flying upside down himself. It all worked out very well until they came out of the cloud bank and the formation learned that it was not upside down at all, that it was the bomber that had been upside down. Mm -hmm. So the commander could never explain this, but he now has a great respect for gremlins and is content to leave all practical joke
0: making to them. Yeah, that comes up quite a bit and it sounds ridiculous, but it's the manipulation of the entire environments. Like gremlins, I think that goes to gremlins getting inside a pilot's head, Yes, whispering stuff to them. It's like, you're upside down, you big dummy, you big fat head. Yeah. They know they're not, but like, it's disconcerting. Right. And that's a problem that a pilot can have,
1: by the way, is you yeah. lose your orientation. And in fact, some of the thought that that was what happened to uh, John F. Kennedy that's Jr. right. He was
0: not instrument rated, I don't believe. And right. When it's a total fog out. When lose it's track of the out,
1: horizon. You, you don't know
0: that you're slowly, by degrees, heading towards the water. You might be late. spiraling
1: and descending and yeah. not realize it, thinking yeah. you're doing flat and level flight. Or in this case, you might even be inverted or upside down. I think I would notice that, but no, yeah.
0: you think you would, but <laughs> you, know. you might not after no, long by hours. By small of degrees, farm. yeah, exactly. Yeah. By small degrees.
1: So the book has a lot of interesting sections in it. Lots of individual gremlins. The first one in the book is the Digger Gremlin, and he has shovels for feet. Mm-hmm. There's quotes from different people that Eric Sloan, I guess, had send in quotes, obviously all in good fun. There's the Zoot Gremlin who has a Zoot suit. Mm-hmm. Uh, his Latin name is Hepcatus Gremlinicus. Hepcat. Yeah, yeah Hepcat. Yeah, there uh, there's the tree-moving Gremlin. There's the jack-footed Gremlin. This one's pretty interesting. What it
0: does is it changes how close the ground is to your airplane. Pay attention, because these similar descriptions come up again and again by a lot of different sources all around the same time. So... We're going to cover that and talk about it as it comes up in these often quoted sources, but we don't know who came up with them. Here is the
1: pin nose gremlin, who looks like a mosquito. I'll share a picture of him on our, so you can go back and find it. I'm definitely going to post him. And the quote here from George Post, the vice president of the Edo Edo Aircraft Corporation at College Point, Long Island. This is the quote he submitted regarding the pin nose gremlin. Now, what these uh, will do? They will poke holes in things such as tires, causing a tire to blow out in midair. And with float planes, they mm-hmm. might poke a hole in one of the floats so that right. the plane will list on landing. This gentleman wrote, Dear Mr. Sloan, you'll be glad to know that Edo floats are now treated with the new Edo anti-gremlin lotion. As a result, the pinnose gremlin that punctures wing floats is becoming practically extinct in U.S. naval aviation bases. Good so to know. there's that. It's, it's pretty campy. Yeah. And there were some other ones, a lot of air traffic right now because we're recording close to five o'clock and that's when all the planes take off.
0: Very appropriate. Very
1: though. appropriate. The Whistling Gremlin. This little member of the Gremlin family loves music and is practically a wind instrument himself. He has a peculiar hole in his abdomen with piano wires stretched across it in such a manner that wind whistles through with a musical note. By means of this soundbox, the Gremlin delights in making a pilot think he is going faster than his instruments indicate, Mm -hmm. which is most disconcerting during a landing. The Gremlin's whistling noise often resembles the radio beam signal and the whistling Gremlin gets lots of fun out of fooling the instrument pilot by, quote, making like a <laughs> Uh This guy is amazing looking. I'll post a picture of him too. He looks like an O with like a banjo, but there's a yeah. hole in the middle and he's got really crazy eyebrows. <laughs> right. The last one that I'm going to read from the book is the Strato-Gremlins. I like this one because they are seldom found under 35,000 feet. Mm. The rarefied atmosphere in which they live makes them much larger than ordinary gremlins. They are proof against the extreme cold of their native region, but they are lined inside and out with a soft blue fur. This shade of blue is called Stratosphere Blue, and it's just a shade lighter than Eleanor Blue. The quote with this one is particularly nice. This is from Lowry L. Brabham, operations manager, Republic Aviation Corp., short for corporation, Mm -hmm. Farmingdale, Long Island. Dear Eric, the Strato-Altitude Gremlin is well known to the high-flying Republic P-47. One of my biggest jobs is dealing with the little so-and-so. You can take a test pilot's word for it. There are gremlins. Mm. So... This book was a wonderful find. I'm so excited. Yeah, yeah. But there you have it. So that's, you know, I mean, that's a campy look at it. And a lot of things
0: about gremlins are very tongue in cheek, but there are some serious cases too. It's important to this bit of folklore in that there are two simultaneous feelings about it by the people in World War II experiencing them. It's serious and also silly. As we wrap up the section here on World War II, we're going to look at that duality of having this bit of cognitive dissonance about holding these two ideas, it seems to be, uh, at the same time, from really serious people. Yeah. People who were in battle, pilots, really well-respected ones and authorities, and also the people that were writing about it well, and the publications they showed up in.
1: Yeah, and there were a lot of reports by World War II airmen of all kinds of really specific damage. They yeah. claimed there was cut aircraft cables, chewed shredded wiring, boreholes and wings, attacked instrument panels, navigation equipment, bombing sites, problems with landing gear, unexplained engine failure causes, jammed radio frequencies, broken de-icer systems, pretty much anything mechanical or electronic that could go wrong on an airplane, and my favorite, some of them were thought to drink the high-octane fuel from the tanks. (laughs) Which I guess, you know, you drink want, it. They're, they're running drinks. out of Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but
0: unexpectedly. Yes. Look, some of it is probably a little bit of negligence or forgetfulness by the pilot or air crew. But a lot of the times, if you've ever been on a flight with a private pilot who had to check while you were there doing the, the pre-flight check, I can't say
1: that I live in that rarefied space, at least okay. at this time. One time I did fly on a helicopter from Los Angeles to Catalina. Yeah. It was already on, I think, when I got in. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. But right. I know so, what you're talking about. Right. So I had a
0: friend that, uh, you know, he was a private pilot. Oh, wait, he that's didn't not check. true.
1: I did go up with a friend. I forgot about this. Yes, I okay. did, did they, go, they, oh, did did they, they walk around
0: right? with a clipboard and they, they yeah. did the pre-flight check? Yeah, yeah, he was very careful. Flying was a long is a time very ago, serious yeah. business because yeah. you can't just pull over. Yeah. So everything is checked. It doesn't matter who you are. When you get your license, when you've trained enough and you can fly Everything must be checked. They're very serious about it. So that cuts down on negligence and forgetfulness. So I'm talking about weird things that happen that should not happen. Like I said, you you fill the tanks, there's no hole in them, suddenly you're just losing fuel for no reason. You get on the ground, there's no leak detected. It's weird stuff like that that's happening. Yes. And sometimes, you know, it is a scapegoat for things that really did happen that are forgetfulness and, you know, negligence or just uh, sloppiness because a lot of stuff's happening at once and... It's an easy way to blame it on something that is kind of mysterious, but like, ah, Gremlin did it. I saw it. Right. Well, I don't know if you'd say you saw it, but you could just say Gremlins to your fellow pilots and they get it. Yes. That's where we're going here. But sometimes what we're trying to point out is a lot of weird stuff happened that was and continued to be unexplainable.
1: Hi, I'm Danny Hillenbrand from Brooklyn, New York. And when I'm not finding my own mysteries to solve, I listen to Astonishing Legends. Now, let's get back to the show.
0: Let's take a look at the history of the Gremlin in World War II, and and where did that start? I think it's important here to go back to the earlier section here when we're talking about the uh, etymology of the word Gremlin, because that'll give you a clue into how this kind of started, because we get a rare chance here to look at the birth of this mythology. In a sense, yes. Well, other suggestions that have been made. I think Marissa and River dug this up. Are a couple of possible word origins. One being of Irish uh, origin here, the Gramin, gramine, grimen. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> Gaelic. It's a word for gloomy little person. There's a Dutch gremlin, gremlin, g r e m m e l e n, to stain, spoil, make dirtier. Gremlin. Also, gremlin meaning to swarm, team. But there's not much evidence supporting these word origin claims here. Yeah. But it sounds of the British Isles, the UK in general, starting in that region, something having to do with that birthplace and also the reason why possibly this legend started there. But what's interesting here in trying to find out where the word gremlin came from is that even in the early to mid 20th century, we are witnessing the birth or the discovery of a new creature and the evolution of its mythology, most likely from existing ancient folklore. So I wonder where the writers about the gremlin encounters and their definitions got their ideas because it's apparent these authors aren't inventing the mythology. They're just reporting on the real events and encounters from pilots and air crew from the first and second world wars. And the gremlin folklore is coming into existence organically through natural human behavior in unusual and stressful times like war. Most any combat veteran will tell you the strangest things happen during wartime.
1: Well, it's a high-stress situation. There's a lot going on, both externally and internally. Right. It's unlike probably anything else that we can imagine, especially oh, yeah. in modern times when, especially in our part of the world, where the majority of folks aren't exposed to warfare or life and death, especially hand-to-hand kind of warfare that used to go on in the world wars.
0: Absolutely. Well, they, as they say, no closer bond is shared than between... Two people in, in combat, you develop that bond. And that goes to these tales of fellow airmen claiming they saw something weird. And it's like your best friend saying they saw something really unusual, the goblin in the garden, you know. And yeah, you maybe think that they're mistaken, but you know them, you trust them. They seem serious. You want to believe them. Maybe you're not sure what they saw, but you yourself have maybe experienced, most likely, some very weird mechanical stuff that could not be explained. So you're open to it. You're not calling them a bunch of weirdos and drunks and, and all that. They're idiots and they don't know what they're talking about. So that's kind of the reason why this subject is treated with a lot of affection, but also a tone of deference, a respectfulness to just the, the silly idea of this. So anyway, I, I just thought that that was interesting that so many of these folklore and legend kind of subjects, we don't know how they came about, but... We try to paint a picture of what their early origins are, but now we 're seeing the creation, the culmination of a very specific type of folklore and and fairy folk or goblin type creature and it's a I think it's a rare thing, yeah, so remember earlier when we were discussing the word origin of Gremlin, and we mentioned the passage about possibly Fremlin beer being the inspiration for the word from the Sutton companion to folklore? Yes. Okay, and the book mentions that the word gremlin, or idea, got famous after group captain Leonard Cheshire was heard cursing gremlins on a York or Yorkshire aerodrome. Well, that idea that an author first heard this renowned and highly respected pilot using the word gremlins is also cited by Christine Ammer in her book Fighting Words from War, Rebellion, and Other Combative Capers. Which we mentioned earlier. Exactly. Well, it seems likely that it was the author Charles Graves who heard group captain Cheshire cussing them out. And then he put the word "an idea into his book in 1941. And here's a passage that mentions them. Again, this is from uh, 1941, the book Thin Blue Line. Quote, as he flew round, he wished that his instructor had never told him about the little people. A mythological bunch of good and bad fairies originally invented by the Royal Naval Air Service in the Great War, that would be World War I, those awful little people, the gremlins, who run up and down the wing with scissors going snip, snap, snip, made him sweat. So that's a point being made there, that gremlins were known from World War I, and then the idea gained even more popularity by World War Two. Yeah, you're right. Most people think they started with World War II, but we are seeing some
1: information that's pointing to origins in World War I. Now, they got the most attention... During World War II, when they were talked about by Great Britain's Royal Air Force pilots from 1939 or 40 to 1945. Right, so as soon as Britain got into the war. A lot of these accounts came from pilots who flew during the Battle of Britain. But it's becoming more evident that they were mentioned by military pilots prior to that. A poem published in the journal Aeroplane in Malta on the 10th of April 1929 1929, is often reported as the first known appearance of the word gremlin in print. During the 1920s, gremlin was used as slang with British Royal Air Force pilots who were stationed in Malta, India, and the Middle East. From 1929's Aeroplane, there is a class aboard, loathed by all the high and mighty, slaves who work and get but little, little thanks for all their labor. Yet they are both skilled and many, many men with many talents. They are but a herd of gremlins, gremlins who do all the flying, gremlins who do
0: much instructing, work shunned by the wing commanders. That's interesting because it's mentioning the slang that the word gremlin is supposed to be, and also an early use of the word gremlin as a lowly or despised person, a menial, a dog's body, a wretch. So it's talking about the workaday guys in the RAF who do all the hard physical labor, the aircrew mechanics, the pilots who fly long hours and endless missions, and they don't get any respect. And so it's also a term, though, for the gremlin, Right, A lowly wretch who's toiling away, causing a lot of damage, but basically someone um, who is not well-respected.
1: Right. And that actually goes back to that article by Christine Ammer and her statement, quote, the word was current in the RAF soon after World War One, And in those days, it meant a low-ranking man assigned to the least desirable duties. There in you America. go. Yeah. So, so it's a common word. That's the
0: vibe we're getting here is it was common slang. It kind of
1: might have gotten reinvented.
0: Uh, Yeah, exactly. It was reappropriated or just included, not only for humans, but for these hobgoblins of the air. Indeed. (laughs) Hobgoblins. Okay, so we have that. But an even earlier account comes from 1923. Now, according to uh, this website, which has a pretty good passage about gremlins in general, unexplainedstuff.com, it says, Dave Stern, an aerospace, aviation, and history writer, says that the modern legend began when a British naval pilot was rescued after crashing into the sea. I think you're going to love this account. This pilot had blamed the crash on some little people who had jumped out of a beer bottle and had tormented him all night. We've both had similar experiences to that. Uh, right, <laughs> right. Maybe in our college days more. And this is funny. All
1: right, that was 1923. There is here in the Grimless Americanus, the Eric yes, phone book right. that I referred to earlier, there is the drinking gremlin... <laughs> And he looks like a beer can, an old timey beer can. Uh, Imbibus (laughs) gremlinicus. And That's appropriate. Uh, <laughs> here's the quote associated with that one. Dear Eric, I made the acquaintance of the drinking gremlin in the days of the First World War. They puff up when you least expect it and drink everything from high octane
0: to vin ordinaire. Best regards, Colonel J. Carroll Cohn, Pan American Airways. Nice. Yeah. Well, the account goes on to say, by this pilot who was rescued, that these little people, after this night of torment, then followed him into his plane and entered into the engine compartment, I think he meant to say, and screwed up the flight controls, causing him to crash. They spent a lot of time with him. It was the night out before, they hung out all night. They popped out of the bottle. Yeah, uh, then they went onto the plane. (laughs) Then they cut out of the plane. Yeah. That's a report that's often pointed to as like, well, that's the first mention of any kind of report of a gremlin or a pilot willing to say that. But my point here is... I think I would have left out the beer bottle part yeah. and, the, and the drinking the night before. <laughs> Maybe just had one or two beers. That ties into the Fremlin beer bottle uh, yeah. mythology of this. And also that gremlins, you know, a lot of the time will just pop out of beer bottles. I think I would have left that out, though. Yeah. In making the report. Because my point here, logic would say, if you crashed and the plane sank, how are they going to know otherwise? You just say, well, I had an engine failure. You don't have to make up the story. Yeah. It was those bloody gremlins. Because that's one of the um, stories that's put down in actually some really uh, respected publications. There's a book called The Language of World War II, compiled by A. Marjorie Taylor. She's a librarian, researcher at the Rochester Public Library. But that book came out in 1948, so it's pretty fresh. So she's compiling a lot of the slang terminology. She's kind of a hero to our own Marissa in the Ark, who's a librarian, Yes. And, and she loved this quote here, which sums up a lot of this gremlin aspect from an anthropological standpoint. Quote, each crisis creates its own vocabulary. John Mason Brown. Oh, nice. This is a crisis time, a major one, and that spawns its own ideas, terminology, myths, and that's part of what's happening here. But there may still be a paranormal element to this. And if you believe that supernatural entities are possible and spirit attachments, then I guess the beer bottle thing could have happened. I've actually heard a story uh, from someone who was from the Vietnam era about something weird happening at base camp, which was gremlin-like while they were trying to go to sleep. Very bizarre sighting that haunted this person into the night and into the next day during wartime. Right. Now, as I said before, a lot of weird stuff happens during war. It happens all the time anyway, but... Well, you know, after this, I guess there were a lot more reports by RAF pilots and
1: aviation mechanics stationed at an overseas airfield, which uh, the specific one isn't mentioned. I guess after that incident and by 1925, it had become a thing where the RAF personnel were blaming gremlins for a lot of mishaps.
0: Yeah, it just became an overall known scapegoat and kind of a thing, a pet thing with the RAF. But I think not only because it's an easy thing and a fun thing for them to share in their own terminology to blame these mishaps and that a lot of weird things and unexplainable things were happening, as you say, intermittent problems, but also I believe some of these sightings and accounts were genuine. We can't actually say, of course, uh, what they saw, but I believe that people were seeing strange things and that's a small percentage and that got rolled into to cover all these other mishaps. Well, the Unexplained Stuff article goes on to say that U.S. Army Air Force
1: pilots also began to experience gremlin activity once they were stationed at British airfield bases once the U.S. entered the war in December of 41. Specifically, unexplained attacks on their instrument panels, their bombing sites, and the de-icer mechanisms. It started happening to them as soon as they got over the territory. Isn't yeah, that interesting? It is interesting. The reason this is important is because it seems like American military pilots from World War I must have experienced odd mechanical failures, but didn't start experiencing gremlin-like encounters until they got to England to help with the aviation war efforts.
0: Yeah, not in you know aviation problems in America during World War I when right. they were flying. They had, of course, uh, we had our own planes, but when they got to England in World War I, with the American expeditionary forces to help out. Then they started experiencing problems, it seems. Yeah, so they were stuck.
1: The gremlins apparently couldn't make it overseas. <laughs> well, they they had a fresh new crop of uh, guys to plague. Right. Yeah. This comes from an American speech publication, 1944. Gremlins are mythical creatures who are supposed to cause trouble such as engine failure and aeroplanes, a curious piece of whimsy-whamsy, and an activity so severely practical as flying. Now, the gremlin seems to be extending its sphere of operations so that the term can be applied to almost
0: anything that inexplicably goes wrong in human affairs. Yeah, again, anything that's kind of weird that happens and you want to blame it on something else, it's gremlins did it. But then they start popping up
1: in the years following World War One. In the 1938 novel, The A.T.A., Women with Wings author... And pilot Pauline Gower mentioned Scotland as being gremlin country, where the little devils would cut biplane wires. Mm -hmm. Here's a quote from that the book Women with Wings, written by Pauline Gower, 1938. Chambers told us the old Air Force legend of the gremlins. These are weird little creatures who fly about looking for unfortunate pilots who are either lost or in difficulties with the weather. Their chief haunts are ravines and the boulder-covered tops of hills. They fly about with scissors in each hand
0: and try to cut the wires on an aeroplane. That's a good point because there is one theory that gremlins only happened once aircraft got more complicated and there was more things to go wrong as we mentioned earlier, it's like, well, biplanes, yeah, it's a machine, but it's kind of a, more of a simple machine. Pretty simple, yeah. Yeah, if you've ever owned, and uh, happened to got handed down to me a 1946 Ford, which is in desperate need of a lot of repair, but you look into the engine compartment, and you can almost crawl inside. There's, yeah. it, it's not very there's complicated. A, there's a lot of room, A lot of very room. very little going on. Yeah, I can, Fire, gas, <laughs> electricity. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I could work on it myself yeah. in high school. You open the hood on a car nowadays, and it's so jam-packed, they got to remove 50 things to get at the, uh, you know, anything in there. So yes. that's an interesting point here is that what she's saying as a pilot and an author, the simplest things on an airplane, on a biplane could happen. Just wires being cut, control wires. Yeah. So next, we're going to be looking at two articles that get pointed to a lot and referenced important articles of the period, 1942. So the war is at the earlier stages, but in full swing. And what's interesting about these two articles, these pieces, is that the terminology seems to be already set. It's not like these guys were making up stuff. Well, we don't know for sure, but it seems like because they were written and published so closely together that these terms were already established.
1: Yes. There's some fuzziness over, like if somebody crafted them, and online you'll see errant sources about who came up with what term first. Exactly. Then you go to look at publication
0: dates, and you'll find that it's a little fuzzy. Yeah, it's really weird. We're going to be taking a look at a famous book here next that makes mention of all these same terms, but we don't know where they came from, other than that these people had direct access and experience with the RAF, it seems. And it seems like they were just common knowledge by then. One of the articles here, for example, is an article written by Hubert Griffith that appeared in the Royal Air Force Journal dated April 18th, 1942, where Gremlins is mentioned. And it's a whole article about Gremlins. And Griffith's article states that stories of Gremlins attacking RAF aircraft had been in circulation for several years prior to the article being written, and that Spitfire pilots from the Battle of Britain had later on told stories about incidents from as early as 1940. So as time had passed, and these are now veterans, combat veterans, more stories started to come out. And what Hubert Griffith is saying is that they were already kind of established, a lot of these stories, but you didn't hear the bulk of them until, you know, midway through the war and and later. So from the Gremlin Question, that's the name of the article by Hubert Griffith, Issue number 13 from April 18th. Now, Griffith himself was a pretty experienced pilot. He says that he had done over 300 hours of flying in World War I and had been with a coastal command squadron in France and then in various training stations for almost a year during World War II. And what's interesting is that he had never heard of gremlins. So it's established, but he just hadn't heard of them yet until he was stationed with an Aria fighter wing in northern Russia, where he says gremlins were discussed quite freely openly by the pilots and had become quote an accepted fact of life (laughs) and so they were just like yeah there's gremlins just get used to it weird stuff's gonna happen and that gremlins and that gremlins as actual things were explained to him as if he were a child and everybody knew about it (laughs) it was said that gremlins could come out of the clouds and run up the wrong tip of your wing that would wobble the plane you know putting it off balance If you're taxing down a runway, they would run down to the nose of the plane, tip it up, and then you would lurch forward and prang a prop. (laughs) Uh, Griffith noted that everyone said they as if they were talking about real people, or at least real beings, and not joking about imaginary things. So the night after first hearing about them, Griffith hears about a new type of gremlin from a friend called a spanduel, or ice gremlin. Now, Griffith's fighter pilot friend, Mickey Rook, and he mentions him in the article, so I think he was a real person, and he does this to establish that this guy was very well-respected, a lot of experienced, battle-hardened kind of guy, spoke about him pretty seriously, to mention him by name. He's quoted as saying, Mickey is, that the duel quote, takes over at 10,000 feet. Gremlins proper only operate lower down. They can't get the height, end quote. Further of the Spanduel, from all the pilots in the wing, they say, quote, he's a pig. He's the only one you've got to watch. He'll do you down if he can, end quote on that. And going on to describe the Spanduel, it seemed like a collective type of being, quite small, operating in mass rather than individually. Those are two different types of ideas that they operate as on their own and for bigger jobs or maybe at higher altitudes like these Spanduels that they would uh, operate in mass and gang up on a plane. Griffith also noted that there are regional types of
1: gremlins as well. Quote, since those days, a mountain of documentary evidence seems to have accumulated, end quote. Griffith writes, with there being witnesses, Mediterranean gremlins... East Fifeshire Gremlins and pilots of every branch and command of the service have experienced them. They've become a daily discussion and have generated a lot of Gremlin lore and literature and are now a
0: part of the RAF consciousness. Griffith goes on to again cite his friend Mickey Rook. And again, he must be somebody that was well known as a character. This is way before he did The Wrestler. Yeah. (laughs) Though that's Rourke. Oh, I see what you're doing there. Another interesting thing that Rook is establishing with his tale of, of Gremlins is something that's often made note of, is that gremlins, they're not always malicious. They have a sense of humor. They're not always malevolent. They can be playful, and even if that sense of humor they have is distorted, although a very small minority, there are reports of gremlins coming to a pilot's aid in emergencies. So going back to mythology about goblins and and wee folk is that sometimes they can be helpful. A lot of times they're just playing pranks. Yes, yes. And so gremlins are kind of in that in-between phase where there are maybe like, uh, gnomes who, are, if you're very nice to them, they'll help you out a lot. They love humans. They love children. Yeah. But others on the other end of the spectrum, like the Kelpie, will just outright kill you. Yes. Lead you astray and drown you or yeah. devour you. Gremlins are kind of in that middle area there where most of the time they're causing trouble. But occasionally, if you are respectful and true and a good pilot and paid attention, they might help you out with things like whispering to you, you should change course you should get to another altitude. If you get lost, they might help you. Supposedly, some of those did that with Mr. Lindbergh, but we'll, yeah. save that. we'll save that for a minute. All right. <laughs> now, of course, there are very few accounts of airmen actually seeing gremlins, but a few had claimed to see them, but the accounts vary. So their shape kind of remains a mystery, or at least it's not standard enough, I think, for Griffith to mention. They have all kinds of weird properties to them and characteristics, like he was making a joke that tail gunners because it's lonely being at the very back of the plane. You're kind of disconnected. I mean, you're on the radio headset. Yeah. But you're way in the back of the plane. If you're getting chased by Messer Schmitz, you're getting shot at first. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a yeah. very dangerous occupation to be way in the back. It's a different class, let's say, of air crew. <laughs> and I want to make a point here that, of course, this article, like a lot of the ones we've read, probably most, takes a tongue-in-cheek tone to it. You have to, because <laughs> these get more and more outrageous, some of the things that they're doing, and, and kind of silly. Yeah. But at the same time, I believe that these authors, it's a safe place to be. You're not seen as a nutcase relaying this stuff. So it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek, fun article, but there we really seem don't to be... know
1: how our <laughs> listeners are seeing us. They, they might <laughs> well, see us that way. We're
0: just reporting on the nutcase here. Okay, okay, right. <laughs> just establish that. <laughs> yeah. But it seems, though, that there's also a respectful tone in that I think there were some genuinely weird stories, and the other fellow pilots believed them as they know the general public wouldn't. So the only way you're going to write about this is to kind of approach it. Again, these articles are written like seriously sounding, but of course meant to be taken tongue in cheek, if you don't believe it. Yes. (laughs) So anyway, yeah, different types of gremlins, some that would ride on the backs of seagulls in a little cross-legged position, little tiny gremlins. That's how they get to the plane. Some kind of pop out of the clouds. Again, tail gunners were known to invite them in to keep them company. Right. An inside joke among air crew. (laughs) And so Griffith was saying like, is it worth the price? Yeah. They cause so much trouble. We know you're lonely back there, but don't do it. Here's a curious quote from the article, though. As Griffith says, a further thought comes in, who could actually draw the outline of a gremlin? Is he a presence, quote, end quote, rather than a personality, a spirit, than an embodiment? So that's wondering about the question, is this a real physical creature or is it more of a spirit or is it something that can go back and forth? And just materialized. I think a lot of people who did believe in this stuff then thought that that these are spirits that just and then they materialize. They cause trouble and they go away because you can't really capture one. Yeah. So here's an overall thought where they may have come from. Gremlins are believed to have originated in the Middle East, where long before the war they made themselves something of a pest to many pilots, especially those of flying boats. They were reported on wingtips, on floats, on propellers, and in the aircraft. One particularly virulent species of gremlin apparently living in the clouds, had a habit of entering aircraft in bad visibility. When the pilot had been flying for some time in a cloud without being able to capture a glimpse of the ground, the gremlin would skip onto his shoulder and whisper in his ear, you silly fathead, you're upside down. So if <laughs> we've heard that before, that yeah. keeps coming up. Yeah, That's talking about them messing with your head. Unless you were in real trouble and they wanted to help you, then they would whisper helpful directions because they were expert in navigation as well as the mechanical arts. Well, of course, the pilot wasn't upside down, but this, as Griffith says, this made you really unnerved. I'm sure hearing a voice in your head like, wait, am I upside down? I don't know. (laughs) Who's talking to me? You know, they're messing with you in every way they can. So then there's another mention by Griffith that the story originates with a particular unit, the photographic reconnaissance unit, the PRU. The PRU. And I want to point out that in the poem at the top of the show, in the cold
1: open, Mm -hmm. you heard him say the PRU in reference to Pretty Ruddy Unlikely. Right. But it actually was a cover up for the Photographic Reconnaissance Unit. It was kind of an origin for these larger stories. That does
0: seem to be a focal point where they started, these stories started. What's unique about them is that they fly at very high altitudes. Right. Where the air is very cold. A lot of the heat in the plane apparently was diverted to the photographic equipment to keep that warm. So did that have a, anything to do with it, you wonder? Yeah. And maybe they were just jokesters. So maybe that, that's a unit, though, that apparently a lot of these stories first started coming out of or were known, but this may not have applied to World War One, Right. So it's just a particular case of gremlin stories coming from this particular unit. And they, of course, have their own description. Also, it's regional. The Coastal Command Squadron in Gibraltar has their own reports. It is believed that the gremlin found in the neighborhood of the rock, as they say, is generally speaking of the hairy-footed variety with extremely large rudimentary ears fastened to the head. And in the case of the male, by a peculiar scaffolding of gristle about eight feet long. I don't mean, can't even picture that. <laughs> but something <laughs> you may, mentioned earlier. The abdomen is pierced with triangular holes through which the wind whistles when in flight. Yes, to give you that false sense of speed. Yeah, and then the whistling and the whirring noise, which unnerves you. There are a lot of weird commonalities that keep coming up with these descriptions. And maybe it is just a part of folklore where people just hear something and they repeat it, they add a little something. Right. But it's still staying pretty tight. So Griffith concludes his article, his groundbreaking one here, with something that's a bit of a curious thought on the maybe the philosophy of it in that at once he says this is probably a subject best suited to H.G. Wells, who was popular and known at the time, because it's like sci-fi, is essentially what he's saying. But there's also a psychological and possibly connected to a spiritual psychic aspect to this phenomenon. Because Griffith remarks, perhaps again, there's a simpler solution to all this. As Mark Sheldon, a fellow Australian fighter pilot, mentioned, in his thinking of why gremlins appear, wh- why they're doing what they're doing, he said, quote, the whole thing is they more or less reflect your mood. If you fly carefully and well, they treat you good. If you fly badly, they act badly by you. So that's interesting. It's connected to your own emotional state as a pilot and how well you're paying attention. And maybe that ties into a psychological thing, or if you're more of a mind of a an emotional spiritual connection that it depends on your state of mind and your attitude that these things mess with you and show up. And of course, during the Battle of Britain, which was pretty hairy for the entire nation because of Operation Sea Line, where the Germans were planning on invading the entire island and the Luftwaffe was going to destroy Britain's air defenses and they gallantly fought them off for a long time. It was very stressful. So that all possibly plays into this. Yeah, well, it's funny you should mention that because the Battle of Britain was
1: one of those cases where the British Air Ministry acknowledged that there was a problem with gremlins, and they made serious attempts to investigate them. They even went as far as to have a service manual written up by a grimlorist, Pilot Officer Percy Prune, (laughs) which was an official document consisting of a list of the creature's exploits, how to placate or distract them, and various ways to avoid accidents due to their presence, such as not displaying bravado... Arrogance or overconfidence, which was thought to attract the creatures.
0: Yes, that passage there comes from Brent Swanser and his article from Mysterious Universe in a blog, The Real Gremlins of World War II, where he was talking about Officer Percy Prune. Now, we know that Percy Prune was a caricature. Yes.
1: He was uh, created for comic relief and to give people a place to put their thoughts about uh, <laughs> right. these crazy things. And uh, right. he, he had little expressions and he made up words and made up phrases. And I apparently he was a big hit.
0: Well, so. he's like Sand Sack. I remember that old army cartoon. It's a way to commiserate. But what's interesting, if this service manual was real and kind of narrated by Percy Prune, again, it's a way of approaching the subject in that bifold stance here is that it's a lighthearted comic thing, but also, you know, there's something going on. You should pay attention. And I want to make a note about, we often talk about this, about a, uh, an authority or a supervisory board of some kind, whoever's in charge, taking something weird seriously, enough that they write a manual on it. I'm not sure if I mentioned this before, but I had a friend of a friend who started off a career in the mortuary business. Now, I was told that this is a real thing yeah. by this person. Again, I'm hearing it, you know, third hand. But this person did not believe in ghosts and spirits and all that and things that go bump in the night. But they had the overnight job, the shift at the mortuary. And so many weird things were happening that freaked them out. Noises, haunted groans and all kinds of doors rattling. So much stuff. They were freaking out and they were about to quit because it was driving them nuts. And they told their supervisor, I guess the owner of the mortuary was like, I don't know what's going on. I don't believe in this stuff, but... It's freaking me out. I'm too terrified. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. We should have just given you this manual to start. We forgot. It's a manual on what to do when spooky supernatural stuff happens at the mortuary. <laughs> <And> it's like, <laughs> why can't what? we get a copy of that? I want a copy of that. It's out there. It's probably an industry secret or something they don't talk about a lot because, again, it's it's that woo-woo nature. I was told this thing is real. I've been trying to get a hold of a copy. But in nowadays, who know? I mean, this is a long time ago. This is probably maybe 20, 30 years ago when this incident happened. And there may not be an official publication, but it is one of those things, as we saw, that's taken seriously by people who visit a lot. Like, remember Dr. Sean Daly's pamphlet that they hand out to people who want to take an overnight tour or, or experience the go ghost hunting at the Sally House? Is yes. That, okay, you can laugh, but here's how to avoid something following you home. And here's how to be respectful, the do's and don'ts. So you can take it kind of tongue in cheek, but at the same time, weird stuff may be happening. Anyway, I thought that was a pretty interesting viewpoint that if this manual by the British Air Ministry was real, it's a way to say, like, be careful, stuff does happen, you're going to have to be as sharp as possible.
1: Hey, listeners. While there's a chance
0: that I'll be working on my Squarespace webpage wearing my guy's Macwell undershirt after I've smoothed out my legs with my Harry's razor, there's a guarantee that I will be listening to Astonishing Legends with Forrest Burgess and Scott Philbrook. Let's get back to the show.
1: All right, before we switch gears here, there is one last thing I want to mention. I, would, I do feel like we have to mention the AMC Gremlin.
0: <laughs> Which uh, is a car, yeah, not particularly attractive in my opinion. But well, it's- I thought a... it was somewhat cool. It was a hatchback, right? A five door, no, a three door because there's a it's it's a coupe with yeah. the two doors and then a a flat slanted back hatch.
1: Yes, a very flat back. Listen to this on the Wikipedia page from it. Designed and named by Teague, that's the designer, to look either, quote, cute or controversial, depending on one's viewpoint. For many, it seemed perfect for the free thinking of the early 70s, end quote. (laughs) American Motors executives apparently felt confident enough to not worry that the Gremlin name might have negative connotations. Time Magazine noted two definitions for Gremlin, quote, defined by Webster's as a small gnome held to be responsible for malfunction of equipment. American Motor's definition, however, was a pal to its friends and an ogre to its enemies. The car's cartoon-inspired mascot was marketed for product differentiation and was intended to be memorable to consumers. That hood ornament, and by the way, AMC always had the coolest ones. I had an ant with a hornet, and it had like a chrome hornet, and it. it was the coolest thing of all time.
0: Yeah, and, uh, that may have been the only cool design feature of any American Motors car. Yeah, but <laughs> right. the
1: Gremlin has a little Gremlin. It's like a circular yes. badge
0: with a little Gremlin on it.
1: It's pretty crazy. But it is interesting that they named the car after what no. really is kind of it's not good is this is going to break down it's got a lot of issues No, there's been
0: <laughs> there's a lot of stories like that about manufacturers not understanding fully the cultural contexts of the whatever the, they're the, 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 the Yeah, the chevy nova which nova in spanish means no go yeah <laughs> yeah well <laughs> that doesn't surprise me at all but it was an interesting car name of my day and i think maybe the first time i'd heard about gremlins other than for my grandfather who fought in World War II, but he was on the ground. He didn't have a lot of air experience. But I will say the American pilots, as we said earlier, when they got to England, started experiencing their own problems and they had their own nickname. They called them the Yehudis. It was after a famous violinist that would appear on, uh, I think, talk shows in the late 30s, right? Yes, Yahudi. Yeah, and so he was a violinist and these gremlins were always fiddling around. It was a Bob Hope radio show where he was supposed to appear, but his sidekick,
1: Jerry Colonna, thought that Yehudi's name was funny, so it became a running joke and Yehudi came to, from a slang standpoint, represent a person who mysteriously wasn't there. Yeah, the little man who wasn't there. Yeah, we'll put the link in our show notes. There's a link to the actual radio bit about that, which is pretty funny. Yeah,
0: give me the link. Yeah, yeah. that's a radio bit, right? Comedy.
1: Yes, radio comedy. Well, that's who how is right. Yehudi. It's a little song <laughs> and it's it's actually a pretty good song.
0: Yeah, I, that's an interesting, <laughs> Idea. I mean, uh, Katie in the Ark had found a Life magazine article from 1942, which yes. describes a lot of that same mythology that the British were coming up
1: with. From an illustration standpoint, that article is really interesting as well. It made me think of Roger Rabbit because it's real pictures and then the <laughs> gremlins are animated into yeah. the pictures. And we would have used some of those, but I'm pretty sure we would have gotten a cease and desist before we even posted them. <laughs> well, like, yeah, somebody <laughs> owns
0: still owns Life magazine. Yeah, so yeah. that also ties in, that fact of... Uh, animation or or drawings, which you can see in those British safety posters we talked about earlier, which I believe were illustrated by Boris Artsy-Bashev, who did those drawings in the Life Magazine article. But also, it seems those are the same characters from the British posters, where they seemed more of the, uh, let's say, the mid-19th century classical British dress. He's got little uh, uh, a frock coat with tails and spats and a comical ruff around the neck. He's yeah. Wearing, which are kind of pinheaded with a little bit of tufted hair on the top. Yeah. So those are, that's how he pictured them. You know, he's a Russian
1: name, but he was actually an American. And we also found that he served as an expert advisor to the U.S. Department of State's psychological warfare brand.
0: I know. That was an interesting fact to, to yeah. come across. So he's <laughs> but, one of those
1: guys yeah. that's like, yeah, let's put the speakers on loud and, <laughs> and play Def Leppard for
0: 24 hours. Exactly. That's but, what, what they do
1: with the dmz in korea right they're blasting the music which which i guess they turned, of they turned off they turned off a year ago you well know, that's but.
0: used as a torture by a lot of uh, off the books uh, departments yes black but, ops but speaking of psychological warfare walt disney had a lot to do with bringing the idea of gremlins to the american and oh, yes. Yeah, and the world audience because of the wide reach of Disney at the time. I was kidding about the psychological part of it, but there are wide-reaching psychological components to this and that it's an idea now that seems to be real to a group of people, uh, military people, that is now going to become a fun thing uh, for audiences and, and something children will cherish. And that was started by Roald Dahl, the author. We know who Roald Dahl is, right? Oh, yeah. Author of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yes, and the Great Glass Elevator. The Fantastic Mr. Fox, the BFG, James and the Giant Peach, the author of so many classic children's stories. I don't know if many people know this, but he was also a fighter pilot in World War II. And his books have sold more than 250 million copies worldwide. Now, he was uh, born in Wales to Norwegian immigrant parents but he was a noted pilot as well. So he would have known about these gremlin accounts, most certainly. Yes. And he wrote a book about them. It he was his did. first book, his first children's book. So yeah, Dahl was a fighter pilot for the RAF 80 Squadron in the Middle East, another. Supposed possible birthplace of the idea of gremlins.
1: Yeah, he was a flying ace and intelligence officer rising to the rank of acting wing
0: commander. And he also had his own accidental crash landing in the western desert of Egypt. Now, I don't know if he blamed gremlins for that. Yeah. But he would have been familiar, like most pilots, I'm sure, with strange mechanical things happening. But I think having heard all this lore and, and probably being a part of it in a large way gave him his idea for his first book. Yes. So what is the plot of the Gremlins that he wrote? I want to read
1: this quote here from Wikipedia about this because it sums it up better than I could have. The story concerns mischievous mythical creatures, the Gremlins of the title, often invoked by Royal Air Force pilots as an explanation of mechanical troubles and mishaps. In Dahl's book, the Gremlins' motivation for sabotaging British aircraft is revenge of the destruction of their forest home, which was raised to make way for an aircraft factory. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a main character in the book his name is Gus and his Hawker Hurricane fighter is destroyed over the English Channel by a gremlin but he is able to convince the gremlins as they parachute into the water that they should join forces against a common enemy Hitler and the Nazis rather than fight each other. This goes on to point out how the gremlins are retrained. Uh, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They all get together. <laughs> and the book also contains picturesque details about the ordinary lives of gremlins, baby gremlins, as we have detailed, for instance, are known as widgets and females as fifanellas. Now, here's something that's really fascinating to me about the fifanella thing in mm-hmm. the lady gremlins. This Wikipedia entry says, it's a name taken from the great flying Philly racehorse, Fifanella, that won both the Derby and the Epsom Oaks in 1916, which was the year that Dahl was born. And here's a little more background on Fifanella there, also from Wikipedia. Fifanella was a British thoroughbred racehorse and broodmare. In a career that lasted from 1915 until 1917, she ran seven times and won four races. The highest rated British two-year-old of either sex in 1915 and went on to greater success the following season. As a three-year-old in 1916, she won the Derby and Oaks, both of which were run that year at Newmarket. She was the sixth and most recent Philly to win the Derby. Now, what's interesting about this is it's quite something that Fifanella won those races the year that Dahl was born. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, this book came out in 1943. Grimless Americanus, by Eric Sloan, the illustrator that I read from earlier, came out in 1942,
0: and it mentions Fifanella's as well. Now, to be clear, Dahl did not invent the idea of gremlins, of course, as no. we've stated before. He just was the first to write a book about it. Made really. him famous. Yeah, and he was... Outside of just aviators. Yeah, generally so. credited as introducing the idea or getting that started to the world, because it was more known within just the flying community, military flying community of Britain and then the U.S. Right. People often say, like, well, there was no mention of gremlins with the Axis flyers but there had been some reports that we saw or at least a mention that later on as the war was ending or the war was over there were reports that germans had strange things happen to them and of course we know they have a very rich uh, folkloric history too sure so there were reports it wasn't just a thing about british pilots drinking Fremlin beer strange things and strange accounts were also coming from the Axis flyers at least for with the germans it seems. Now, Dahl had been reassigned to the British Embassy in Washington, D.C. as an assistant air attaché in 1942 in January, and that's when it's believed that he wrote this book. What's interesting to note about that is that when he wrote this book and then the publication in 43, the idea and all these articles that are coming out was in a very
1: short span of time. Well, yeah, and Walt Disney had pushed it into Cosmopolitan Magazine in 1942 also. And it appeared in Walt Disney's Comics and Stories in 43 and 44. But again, I want to point out that Eric Sloan's book came out in 42. Right. It would have to be like, Sloan saw it in Cosmo and baked it into his book and <laughs> yeah. then got his book published overnight. It's a very short book with just a few illustrations. Right. So maybe he did, but it's hard to say, for example, exactly where the Fifanella idea came from. Yeah, if you yeah. can, I don't know if you can credit it to Dahl or if it should be Sloan or if it was prior to both of them. Right. And there's some debate about that. Even on all the sources that we looked at, no one seems to really be able to nail that exactly down it's the kind of thing we could get bogged down in
0: for months if we, <laughs> if we are not careful. <laughs> well, precisely, but it's not something that was just born in 1942 or was a weird kind of a thing. My point here is that it seems to be pretty well established. It doesn't seem like anybody's borrowing from somebody else, other than they heard the same terms that are generally being thrown around. Because in June of 1942 is when Walt Disney considered turning Dahl's book, The Gremlins, into a live-action, full-length feature film. Right. So earlier, talking, you were talking about uh, animated characters appearing over actual photos. That's also... An idea for a film that Disney had. Yes. And that was going to be a big deal. However, that never came to be. It didn't. He couldn't really figure
1: out how, I mean, from what I read, and yeah. I'm certainly not a Disney expert, and I have friends that are who are probably going to give me a hard time after I say this, but <laughs> like they, they couldn't quite figure out how to do Hitler and the Nazis in a Disney film. So they eh, yeah, it, the
0: project absolutely. kind of died on the vine. Well, what had happened is that, as you know, with a lot of Hollywood projects, it gets uh, shortened and changed and it starts shrinking down because... Then Disney decided, well, okay, maybe not a live action slash animated feature. Maybe it's just an animated feature. So they're going with that. and Yeah, that was and then they rewrite
1: it. It eventually became Madagascar. So no, no. no, there was going to be an animated short and then yeah. that didn't happen. No, but Warner Brothers did do an animated short, which I saw. I re- only remembered once we started researching this, there was a Warner Brothers cartoon with the grim They're attacking the plane and mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. And Bugs Bunny is
0: in it. I mean, I've seen it a hundred times. Do you remember that one? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, all those Warner Brothers cartoons, especially Bugs Bunny had a World War II theme and yeah. had a lot of terminology that kids didn't get, but I love them. That came from World War II. Yeah. As military servicemen were coming home from the war they were introducing these terms and it was starting to show up in popular media and culture of the time. So, even though that, that film never happened, generally because the rights could not be sorted out between what the RAF owned. Yeah, and, that's and the and other Dahl, thing. It was hard contracts. To, yeah. And so yeah, it was yeah. like, you know what? Never mind. But Disney actually, upon his urging, As you said before, I believe, the story appeared in Cosmopolitan. Yes. And that was a big publication of the time. It made it out in that realm of magazines. Random House had published a picture book of the revised story in 1943, and that became an international success. So that although Walt Disney, he never made it into a film, you can safely say that he and Roald Dahl helped make the idea of gremlins known to the world.
1: One of the cool things about this, the doll yeah. and the, the Disney thing, is that it does change one of the fundamental elements of the origin story. Yeah. In a way, mm-hmm. because it puts the gremlins as. Something that we mentioned earlier in the episode, more like woodland, natural,
0: nature-associated creatures. Yeah, they were more like little people in his book rather than goblins or or reptilian types of things. I think of them as like the borrowers, except that that they had magical powers and they were expert machinists. Right. And so what this says is they adapted from that
1: life to a life of revenge after their woods were raised to build an aircraft factory. So that part of it is really pretty interesting And it adds another dimension to the story, so it's cool.
0: Well, yeah, they started off living, their origin story is in the ancient forests and swamps of England. That goes into the folklore, the the ancient folklore ideas. Oh, and also Dahl mentioned spandules, remember that? Yeah. Yeah, the ones who lived in the clouds. Right. (laughs) And those ones caused all kinds of problems, I think. They're the ones who iced up the works because they were so high at an altitude that they were their own species. So once again... In this version, Doll's version, they're actually creatures of the elements, nature spirits, of the woods and of the air. So now we're going to take a look at
1: some accounts of gremlin encounters where people actually experienced or saw something. And we're
0: going to start with one of the most famous aviators of all time, Charles Lindbergh. Not only that, he's one of the most famous people of his era. This guy was an international rock star for what he did. He was a big deal. (laughs) It was a big deal. The thing that's interesting about him was he was
1: pretty open-minded when it came to the paranormal. I did not really realize this until we got into this particular episode and had to do a lot of reading and research on him. And turns out he was kind of ready to believe in the unexplained.
0: Well, like a lot of people, though, he didn't start off that way. He was pretty skeptical before he started his epic journey of about 3,600 miles across the Atlantic, and this was in May of 1927, and he left from Roosevelt Field in Garden City, New York, and he landed in Le Bourget Field in Paris. So that's a 33 and a half hour flight in a single engine plane, single seat, and the first person to do that. So it it was a big deal. But he had a mystical experience along the way, which he didn't really tell anybody about until he wrote his autobiography. I think that was in 1953. Yeah, it was 20 years later. So what's important to note here, though, is that this encounter sometimes, often, is attributed to a gremlin experience because it's just dealing with something weird and spiritual, perhaps, or an entity of sorts on an airplane. Well, and there's components of it that line up with the gremlin mythology.
1: There's other components, not so much. So it just kind of depends on what you think gremlins are, really. (laughs) He had his
0: own type of gremlin encounter that was specific to him. But fortunately, it was the good kind. Because in this encounter, they didn't harm him. He had enough problems, you know, on his own. He had his wings icing up, altitude problems. These beings, which were more spiritual as he described them, actually helped him out with advice, expert advice on navigation and comforting him in a way just saying, don't worry, you're going to make this, you're going to do it, you're going to be okay. And it gave him a little bit of power to go through. But it was a very interesting experience in that, yeah, it was very much like what we would think of as a psychic paranormal experience today. So a lot of people, of course, after he mentioned this, well, it's a long flight. You're hallucinating, obviously. It's a long flight. That happens with some pilots. Well, especially high altitude test pilots. Sometimes weird things happen. But in the testing phase, well, as we saw in the near-death experience episodes, that can induce a very strange experience in your mind. But he's only nine hours into the flight when this happened. So that's a long day. It's a long time flying. But Amelia Earhart had really long stretches of flying in a vibrating aircraft which was a lot more advanced than his but still very tiring and she seemed to be fine or at least she never explained or or described any experiences with a gremlin type thing but she, of course she had her own mechanical problems but yeah but this one yeah you, you could say like well he was really tired he's hallucinating he's imagining all this stuff because it's too fanciful but perhaps not so, Scott, why don't you read to us a few passages where Lindbergh describes his
1: experiences? Okay, this is a pretty fascinating section. This is from his biography by Charles A. Lindbergh, The Spirit of St. Louis, and this particular version is a 2003 edition of it from mm-hmm. Charles Scribner's and Sons. While I'm staring at the instruments during an unearthly age of time, both conscious and asleep, the fuselage behind me becomes filled with ghostly presences, vaguely outlined forms transparent. Moving, riding weightless with me in the plane, I feel no surprise at their coming. There's no suddenness to their appearance. Without turning my head, I see them as clearly as though in my normal field of vision. There's no limit to my sight. My skull is one great eye, seeing everywhere at once. These phantoms speak with human voices, friendly, vapor-like shapes without substance, able to vanish or appear at will, to pass in and out through the walls of the fuselage as though no walls were there. Now. Many are crowded behind me. Now, only a few remain. First one and then another presses forward to my shoulder to speak above the engine's noise, and then draws back among the group behind. At times, voices come out of the air itself, clear yet far away, traveling through distances that can't be measured by the scale of human miles. Familiar voices conversing and advising on my flight, discussing problems of my navigation, reassuring me giving me messages of importance unattainable in ordinary life. Apprehension spreads over time and space until their old meanings disappear. I'm not conscious of time's direction. Figures of miles from New York and miles to Paris lose their interest. All sense of substance leaves. There's no longer weight to my body, no longer hardness to the stick. The feeling of flesh is gone. I become independent of physical laws, of food, of shelter, of life. I'm almost one with these vapor-like forms behind me, less tangible than air, universal as ether. I'm still attached to life, they not at all, but at any moment some thin band may snap and there'll be no difference between us. The spirits have no rigid bodies yet they remain human in outline form, emanations from the experience of ages, inhabitants of a universe closed to mortal men. I'm on the borderline of life and a greater realm beyond, as though caught in the field of gravitation between two planets, acted on by forces I can't control, forces too weak to be measured by any means at my command, yet representing powers incomparably stronger than I've ever known. I realize that values are changing both within and without my mind. For 25 years, it's been surrounded by solid walls of bone, not perceiving the limitless expanse, the immortal existence that lies outside. Is this death? Am I crossing the bridge which one sees only in last departing moments? Am I already beyond the point from which I can bring my vision back to earth and men? Death no longer seems the final end it used to be, but rather the entrance to a new and free existence, which includes all space, all time. Am I now more man or spirit? Will I fly my airplane onto Europe and live in flesh as I have before, feeling hunger, pain, and cold? Or am I about to join these ghostly forms, become a consciousness in space, all-seeing, all-knowing, unhampered by materialistic fetters of the world? At another time, I'd be startled by these visions, but on this fantastic flight, I'm so far separated from the earthly life I know that I accept whatever circumstance may come. In fact, these emissaries from a spirit world are quite in keeping with the night and day. They're neither intruders nor strangers. It's more like a gathering of family and friends after years of separation, as though I've known all of them before in some past incarnation. They're as different from men and yet as similar as the night's cloud mountains were to the Rockies of the West. They belong with the towering thunderheads and moonlit corridors of sky. Did they board my plane unseen as I flew between the temple's pillars? Have they ridden with me through sunrise and today? What strange connection exists between us? If they are so concerned with my welfare, why didn't they introduce themselves before? I live in the past, the present, and the future here and in different places all at once. Around me are old associations, bygone friendships, voices from ancestrally distant times. Vistas open up before me as changing as those between the clouds I pass. I'm flying in a plane over the Atlantic Ocean, but I'm also living in years now far away. So, all right, we're going to talk about that passage a little more in a second. There's just one last paragraph that we want to read here. It's from much later in the book, As He's Approaching Ireland. Ireland, the land of banshees, ghosts, and fairies. I've never believed in apparitions, but how can I explain the forms I carried with me through so many hours of this day? The voices that spoke with such authority and clearness that told me, but what did they tell me? I can't remember a single word they said. Wow. He's a
0: really good writer. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Also 25 years old.
0: I mean, come on. You gotta be young to, to endure that kind of flight. That last passage you read... I believe was prior to the 29th hour of flying. Yeah. He's only been flying nine hours when he first starts to experience these, let's say, spiritual beings. And this is a very metaphysical experience he had. Yeah. It's really out there, and I'm not surprised why he didn't start telling people as soon as he landed what it happened Because it's mind-blowing. It's existential. It's very supernatural in a way. It really is something. And when you think about the experience of it and
1: then how it crosses over with gremlins, that's what's, you know, another part of it that's a fascinating component is really for me, I think it's only in that they were giving him advice. And yeah. I've read other analyses of this that suggest that he was more in tune with departed humanity Mm -hmm. and less with gremlins. But what's crazy about this is it's not that we just threw it in here. It's that there are a billion mentions of how Charles Lindbergh encountered gremlins. Yeah. And when you read the passage, it's like, ah, I'm not sure these were gremlins there's maybe a little common ground, but not really. He's not having problems with the plane. He's getting some advice. This seems more like a glimpse of spirituality, the other side, that sort of thing. Yet, if you go on the internet and you search gremlins, everyone talks about Charles Lindbergh and gremlins. But then when you read this passage, it's kind of, eh, not so much. Well,
0: it's the spirit of St. Louis indeed, Uh, because (laughs) these are more described by him as spirits, and I'm not sure if this quote is accurate or not, but you see this published a lot here or reported. Quote, they looked grim and menacing, but I never once felt frightened. And he said that they were more ghostly forms and they may be departed spirits of people or something mystical that had knowledge and not so much the goblin impish-like mystical characters that we've been talking about all night. It has been described by him as something that other pilots have said, that their voices in his head. Other people have said, oh, that's a gremlin thing when they're if you get off track, they're giving you advice as to you're off mark, change your course, drop to a lower altitude. They're giving you uh, expert advice on your flying that helps you out or encourages you. And people could say, well, that's just a part of your subconscious. You're remembering stuff that you should be doing and you're delirious a little bit. So it seems like other worldly voices are telling you this, but it's really voices of your own in your own head. Either way, it's pretty mystical. All right, let's take a look at some other
1: eyewitness accounts. And we mentioned one in the quote at the top of the show. That's a story that a lot of people reference that L.W., who has a
0: very specific experience. World War II. Actually, one of our authors of our earlier pieces said, well, there you go. You got to see the birth, the heyday, and the death of a new mythology. Yes. And now it's over because World War II is over. But that's not the case. A lot of people think that. But if you're in aviation, you know it's a term that is still being used. We have a member of the Ark who has a lot of military connections and Air Force connections in particular, and asked one of his buddies, hey, does this still get mentioned? Do gremlins get blamed for stuff? He's like, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah this, still by goes the way, these are high-ranking
1: active duty people.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and not to say that we're we're talking about the goblins, fairy, pixie, elves, <laughs> that kind of goblin in particular. But it's an active term in that like, oh, yeah, gremlins are at work. They screwed this up. Unexplained phenomena. Yeah, so it's, a, yeah. it's still a commonly used thing. But in addition to that, there are some modern day accounts of people seeing weird <laughs> creature type things screwing up aircraft machinery in all various forms. So that, too, still goes on. So you remember at the top of the show when we're talking about the folklore of gremlins and how that started and some of the terminology and the, the etymology of the word, the, or, the word origin of gremlins. Well, this is on the wiki page uh, even that I found pretty interesting, but it's also, of course, mentioned in other sources. That folklorist, John W. Hazen, was the one who weighed in on the possible origins of the word gremlin to vex or to annoy. Yes. Possibly being a root idea for gremlin. Well, he had his own modern day gremlin experience So paraphrasing this from the wiki entry, Hazen mentions this in a peer-reviewed and academically praised publication, which is pretty brave of him, because if you write this down anywhere, then especially to your peers, they might start questioning your your sane judgment. Yes. (laughs) So apparently what happened during a flight he found a, quote, parted cable which bore obvious tooth marks in spite of the fact that the break occurred in a most inaccessible part of the airplane. And at this point, Hazen thought he heard what he called, quote, a gruff voice demand, how many times must you be told to obey orders and not tackle jobs you aren't qualified for? This is how it should be done, end quote, upon which he heard a musical twang, (laughs) And another cable was parted. Right there in front of him. Yeah. Okay. So (laughs) there's a couple of things going on here. Yeah. Do you remember, as we talked about earlier, that sometimes gremlins work alone. Yes. And sometimes they work in groups when the task is too big. And there's another idea here. I'm not saying this is where Hazen got this or maybe it influenced him, but there's a correlation between beginning pilots learning to fly and instructors. Remember we said like, it's most embarrassing when you're coming in for a landing and the instructor has told you everything you need to do. And, you, and you, you think you got it lined up. But then the gremlin uses their foot jacks and they lower the entire airfield 10 feet. Yes. And you misjudge it or they bring it up and you bang the bottom of the airplane in a, in a bad landing, right. and possibly damaging everything. The instructor yells at you. You get laughed at by your fellow students. And it's really embarrassing. And the gremlin has a big laugh. Well, that's the action of the gremlin. But like I said, there's also a connection to young gremlins being taught how to destroy and mess with things properly and that they talk to each other. And it's just a weird disembodied voice kind of experience, which is pretty common in the paranormal realm. It seems where you hear conversations going on and you don't see anybody, but then there's a physical action that you do see. And he sees the cable snapping after a bing. Yeah. Almost like a Warner brothers cartoon. So who knows, you know, really, if that's really how Hazen saw it or what he really experienced. I doubt, I mean, he's a well-respected folklorist. I doubt he'd be making that up just to prove his point, because generally folklorists just document. They don't tell about their own experiences about something strange. But that Life magazine article that we mentioned earlier, also in a little comical passage, has a mention of, of a boss gremlin getting after a worker for not doing the job right, or instructing them on on better ways to be mischievous. Well, there's
1: one in particular that you have to talk about. If you're going to talk about gremlins, you got to talk about this one. And this one is one that we could not really find anywhere. We did find some websites that were trying to corroborate it, but they had some issues tracking it back to an actual recorded military incident. Yeah. So there's an implication that perhaps the person who wrote it (laughs) might have been having a little fun with it. Yeah. As near as we can tell, the only place that it's written down is in Charles Berlitz's World of Strange Phenomena, Mm -hmm. which is a book we've mentioned several times on the show. I just happen to have my very own Ah. paperback copy right here. Yes. And it smells amazing. (laughs) It has a price tag on it for $2.50. I think Um, I paid a little bit more as it technically kind of a rare book. It's an amazing book. All these things in here are pretty crazy. But this particular story is on page 210 of the paperback. Let me just dial it up here. It's barely a page and a half. A Massacre in Flight. This is page 210, Charles Berlitt's World of Strange Phenomena, the paperback edition, published by Fawcett Crest. Something terrifying happened in the air one day in the late summer of 1939, and to this day, the incident is shrouded in secrecy. All that is known is that a military transport plane left the Marine Naval Air Station in San Diego at 3.30 one afternoon. It and its 13-man crew were making a routine flight to Honolulu. Three hours later, as the plane was over the Pacific Ocean, a frantic distress signal was sounded, then the radio signal died. A little later, the plane limped back to base and made an emergency landing. Ground crew members rushed to the craft, and when they boarded, they were horrified to see 12 dead men. The only survivor was the co-pilot, who, though badly injured, had stayed alive long enough to bring the plane back. A few minutes later, he was dead, too. All of the bodies had large, gaping wounds. Even weirder, the pilot and co-pilot had emptied their forty-five Colt automatic pistols at something. The empty shells were found lying on the floor of the cockpit. A foul, sulfuric odor pervaded the interior of the craft. The exterior of the airplane was badly damaged, looking as if it had been struck by missiles. The personnel who boarded the craft came down with an odd skin infection. Strict security measures were quickly put into effect and the emergency ground crew was ordered to leave the plane. The job of removing the bodies and investigating the incident was left to three medical officers. The incident was successfully hushed up and did not come to light for 15 years when investigator Robert Coe Gardner learned of it from someone who was there. The mystery of what the crew encountered in midair that afternoon in 1939 has never been solved.
0: Well, if there's any account that's ripe for a movie scene, that's it. And speaking of, I believe that was the inspiration, that story there, for a segment within the animated film Heavy Metal. Oh, okay, nice. (laughs) No, yeah, I remember the film. I have never seen it, actually. That's a glowing evil orb. Okay, well, there we go. Yes, Yes, the cause of many things. Oh, yeah, that just floats into the plane and causes havoc. Well, there you go. I don't know if that's uh, how you would even run that down. And if you were writing fiction, how you end it, it's like, well, there's no records of it because it was top secret. There's a really good blog,
1: and I'll see if I can find it again. We can put it in the show notes, where they did try to connect it with known incidents. Yeah. And they found some things. There was some common ground. There was one particular plane. It was, it was a mid-air collision. That was right. the closest thing they could compare it to was oh, a mid-air collision yeah. where uh, somebody survived. But it didn't have a lot in common with this. It was kind of a leap, which the person who had done the research said themselves. We'll dig that up put it in the show notes. But Well,
0: you know, again, if it's written in, it's a nice touch about the sulfuric smell because that suggests some demonic activity that's otherworldly. Well, let's try and figure out what's really going on here as we wrap up this episode. What about the rational explanations for all this? Well, I mean, obviously, the first one that everyone probably is going to mention
1: is the use of, let's just say, medicinal supplements by (laughs) multiple branches of worldwide military. Honestly, a lot of times, yes, amphetamines. These poor pilots were given that to help stay awake. They had these super long bombing runs where they had to fly. Endlessly, the kamikazes were given medicine to get them amped up for mm-hmm. being suicide pilots. So, there's a lot going on there with that sort of thing, but there's a lot of people that will tell you they were stone cold sober when they experienced these things. And there's mm-hmm. other connections there, but I'll elaborate on that a little bit more as
0: we do our conclusions here in a second. What other sort of rational explanations are there? The first one is flying fatigue, which was right. a real thing, as you said. And well, my point about the amphetamines part of it is that, yeah, you're up for long hours. There was obviously fatigue suffered by everybody, but to me, it's not like a blanket thing that answers everything. You know, it's not like, oh, they're all hopped up on goofballs and seeing stuff. Well, then how do they accomplish their missions? Because they were pretty successful in a lot of it, so you just don't start freaking out and still are able to keep it together and complete the mission and come back and be okay. But certainly there was a lot of fatigue that's stressful, its combat but according to the United States Army Air Force handbook for the years 1939 to 1945 compiled by Martin W Bowman there's a section on that that describes what he was talking about and that there were rest camps set up for pilots that were suffering extreme fatigue to give them a rest for like up to a week yeah as they said rest camps began to function in 1942 and only a very limited number of flying personnel could be sent to them But the sentence after this is worth noting. Despite combat conditions, numbers of breakdowns due to flying stress were remarkably low, according to a report by the surgeon on 20th January 1943. On the other hand, there were some detachments like the 14th Fighter Group. Because they lost so many people, they all had to be given rest. So it doesn't seem to be a really common thing to match up with the number of stories that were being reported. Yes, a lot of people were commenting on it, you know, and using gremlins as a term of camaraderie and something, again, they can discuss. That's an inside joke for them. But it seems like there were too many descriptions going around to fit the amount of flyers having to be given rest periods because they were so fatigued. It's one of those explanations for me. Sure, maybe it explains a few cases, but not enough to call this mystery
1: solved. Well, we did find one paper. It's called The Gremlin Myth by Charles Massinger. And this appeared in the Journal of Educational Sociology, number 17, 1943 and 44. So this was in there. And it's an interesting paper. Now, he did not publish a whole lot else that we could find anywhere else. And he was a grad student at, I think, NYU at the time when I found this paper. I read it. It's, of course, very period associated in terms of the viewpoints that it has. But it essentially comes down to the idea that, of course, it's a myth. There are hallucinations. Pilots are exhausted. There's no way this can be real. But we can't look down on the pilots for having these hallucinations because they're working so hard and they have such long hours. And these are peaceful men that have been cast into the throes of war and uh, the sort of the overall of it. It, it, and it explains, Massinger talks about how the environment is so harsh and so new for these folks who used to be farmers and whatever else mm-hmm. that they did before they became pilots. And I can see a little bit of that. Sure, that's going to create possible hallucinations and there's fatigue associated with it. But like you, I find it unusual for everyone to be experiencing the exact same thing or to experience something similar. On the other hand, once this started to snowball and it became a conclusion that people could wrap their heads around, I could see where everyone might start to glom onto the same idea as a cause. But for my conclusion on the story, having researched it, I got to tell you, Forrest, and I haven't told you this until this very mm-hmm. moment, I don't think this is a thing like I said, I don't think there's a lot of cases where you can find eyewitness accounts of any particular thing. And Mm -hmm. then everyone's describing different stuff. And it seems to me just like a myth or a legend that snowballed and it's fun to talk about. And it's kind of interesting, On the other hand, I totally believe in unexplainable phenomena happening to pilots in the air. We have tons of cases like that that we could cover on the show over the next couple of years. But the Gremlins idea, I believe in it less now that we've researched it than I did before we got to it. (laughs) What did you believe before that? I thought it was a possibility. I remember coming across these stories that seemed... More poignant and direct, but we couldn't find those.
0: Yeah, I think there's a reason for that and that there's not a lot of, we were joking about this yesterday, from Close Encounters, would you like to, uh, Pilot, would you like to report a UFO? Negative tower. Yeah. You don't do that. It ruins your career. I don't know. It's just after you retired and you're on the ground, you can tell everyone all about it. So, yeah, well, that's what happened. In certain cases, it's just not written down. So yes, I agree. We didn't find a lot of uh, reported accounts. When you hear other people talk about the show and podcasts, and also in other documented pieces, blog entries, articles, and all that, even from the time, you don't get a lot of people going on the record. Except it's secondhand. Like I said, that earlier one with Griffith, who said that, yeah, here's a guy, and he was talking about a matter-of-factly, and here's his name. We can't trace him down now, but... It's like so many other strange encounters with cryptids or spiritual beings and little people. You have, as you mentioned earlier, we know somebody that we love and respect who had a strange little person encounter. Yeah. Do you believe them?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people think, oh, because, you know, the experiences I've had over the show over the years, especially with the Sally House, I'm "I'm (laughs) totally going to be, oh, yeah, gremlins, they're real. I'm sure, you know, you don't know, but they're out there. When I come to a topic like this and we go through it and we dig through, and there's a lot of fun information in here and it's interesting. Right, right. But uh, if I don't feel convinced about it by the end of it, I'm going to say it. And in this particular case, obviously I have an open mind. If you could convince me that you had all these eyewitness accounts where people were definitively identifying this or there was more mm-hmm. proof of it besides three or four anecdotes. Yeah. I'd be like, "Hey, you know, let's look into this further. That'd be great." Right. I'm open to the idea of it as weird as it is. Yeah. But I just am not seeing it here. If this was a jury trial, I would be saying not guilty. If this was Mythbusters, I'd be saying myth busted. That's
0: me. <laughs> that's where I'm at. Of course, that's the rational logical approach because there's no evidence or even solid accounts to go by. And there are some good uh, accounts backed up by good sources, like the periodical Aviation Week from 1960 lists a little section on long-duration flights actually causing hallucinations. A navigator seeing a face of a gremlin in his radar screen. Yes, I read that article, and they
1: saw crazy little faces in all the
0: dials. Yes, that's that's right. And there was
1: another guy who was in a simulator for a duration test who became convinced that the TV monitor that the simulator was running on in front of him was melting and about to catch on fire, and he wanted to be let out immediately, nothing they could do outside could convince him they could all see the monitor on
0: a camera that right. nothing was wrong with it. Right. That's, that's, a, a, th-
1: human that's a human condition. That's a human condition in a
0: test subject yes. experiment. Like we said before, when you see the astronaut testing, you have a near-death experience with some people. When you're right. about to black out, these very stressful conditions on the body can produce these things, which are entirely, I believe, physiologically based. But it's a little bit of everything that's going on. I do believe that there are weird creatures out there, let's say, that you don't know about that are possibly—I'm not saying these are cryptids, but I believe that there are weird spiritual types of entities, let's say— that can manifest themselves, as we've heard. Uh, close friends. Here's the weird thing. That. I believe that too. Well, I just don't believe it's happening here. In this case, you don't have anything to go on. And yeah. on the other end of the spectrum, I do believe the anthropologists that make a case for the viewpoint that, like Robin Fox in the book Encounter with Anthropology, from page two forty three. Quote, fighter pilots in World War II could certainly affect the outcome of their sorties by their skill, but there was still a great element of chance involved, and they carried talismans and charms, rabbit feet were popular, and they invented gremlins, malignant sprites that caused bad luck to account for failures. This shows how people, even when they are involved with superior technology, resort to superstition. There is that, and it goes with the attitude of, like I said, it's an inside joke. You can joke with each other And it's a convenient thing to blame accidents on, especially blame boneheaded blunders and forgetfulness on something that's imaginary an imaginary, funny little creature rather than your fellow pilots, because that would be demoralizing and cause dissension and social. Another good reason
1: for them to exist,
0: which I would agree with you on that. Here's another citation from punch magazine in 1942. Quote, gremlins are found literally everywhere. Every aircraft that comes off mass production lines will automatically acquire one or more gremlins. It is worthy to note that enormous cargo planes will most certainly result in bigger and better gremlins. And <laughs> it says, again, it feels like there is a need for people, slash, humans, to try and find something to blame for things they don't understand. Is there a correlation with a gremlin like encounters and mass production slash factory slash improvements and technologies? Is it more related to removing us from the process of making slash manufacturing things and automating processes? Well, like we said, these encounters come from the biplane era when planes were not so much being manufactured on large production lines where obviously things can go wrong when you start doing that. So basically, I think, yeah, that's possible. It's a sociological, psychological thing. It provides a function in that you can look to this comical character This mystical pixie of the imagination is being at fault for a lot of stuff you can't explain. And it's convenient. It's a bonding mechanism. It's something that's their own. That vocabulary came out of that own crisis and being an airman and on an air crew or even the ground crew when you're a mechanic and things are going wrong. It's something that they can share that's their own and it builds morale. And especially that set of the pilots and ground crew of Britain during a very crucial time in their battle when they almost lost their country and a lot of people were dying and they needed something. So that makes sense. I'll go with that. But on the other end for me is the belief that, yeah, there's so many weird things that happen in our world that are beyond rational explanations and strange creatures. I've just heard too much now. We're talking about Hubert Griffith. I'm not sure he ever saw one, but he'd heard so many first-hand accounts from people that... He trusted and respected and believed that maybe there's something to it. And because I think it's like with everything else, there's a lot of things that are made up and they're sensationalized and they're exaggerated. And nowadays they're put on the internet, creepy pasta, or somebody posting a multi-part tweet about something that's happening in their house, which may or may not be happening, but may have been built upon a very real weird incident. I just believe that weird incidents happen and I believe sometimes there are strange creatures that are seen. So in that big mix of things being made up and actual strange encounters happening to people somewhere in the middle up in the skies, on a plane I will believe that every once in a while a gremlin pops up.
1: That's going to wrap up this week's episode of Astonishing Legends. Join us next week when we'll be
0: back with a new show. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi. Hi, my name is Danny Hillenbrand. Hola, soy Ana. Galaxy wide in perpetuity. En toda la galaxia perpetuidad. I understand this is present or future compensation.
1: Our show is edited
0: by Sarah Voorhees-Wendel and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com, or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.
1: You can also support the show at patreon.com astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.